All right, welcome to the Rekindling Ministries podcast series. This is episode 3.07. As we continue in this unpacking series, we're now looking into what scriptures teach is the most important element of all, love. So my name is Shannon Kirkpatrick, and I am the founder of Rekindling Ministries. And my name is Zach Rios, and I am a student at Liberty University studying youth ministry and pastoral leadership. And so we're continuing in our bringing in of the guests, uh, this time with Tori Doughty. Uh, as with most of the guests, I've known Tori for a couple years. She's been part of a number of the unpacking studies. When she did the love study with us, she beamed from ear to ear for most of the study, watching all the pieces of the puzzle come together. And she really had some solid insights into how love works and why. And so I invited her to join us for this episode. So Tori, welcome. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Uh, I took the love study really as a direct result of the grace and mercy study that we did. And and I joined that one because I recognized that I only understood about 50% Mm -hmm. of grace. And I was really under, uh, really uncomfortable with the concept and receiving grace. So I took the study and I realized at the end of it that the missing component was love and that made up half of it. Yeah. Um, So it was from that study that I really felt the need to intentionally study love, although I wasn't feeling ready ready to do it at the time that we did the love study because I kind of felt like I'd had all I could take um, Mm -hmm. and the Lord had just kind of shown me a lot and it felt like I couldn't handle any more. But then (laughs) you announced that we were doing the love study right after the Grace and Mercy study. So um, I felt like that was just the Lord's perfect timing. And he knew that that I was just getting started on this journey with love. So I took the love study and um, it's really been a a life-changing um, experience for me. Yeah. And so for the, for the listener, we are going to, we've already done, I think 30 of these unpacking studies. And so now we're just working our way through recording all the episodes. So we will be doing an episode on grace and on mercy that will be, will be later this season. Yeah. Um, so with that, let me give a, we, we always like to start off with giving a quick recap of things. So if this is your first time tuning into a rekindling podcast, someone told you to check out the one on love or whatever, we wanted to give you a quick recap to kind of catch you up. Uh, so you can keep tracking. So, in in season one, we do a bunch of the spiritual lenses and paradigms and perspectives, kind of how to see life and how to make decisions. In season two, we did Know Thyself, which was figuring out how you're wired so you can figure out what your calling is. Mm-hmm. So here we are in season three with the Unpacking series. And so we in episode 3.00, we actually explain what the unpacking approach is and why it's so important. It's this idea of looking both comprehensively and in depth and detail on any given topic uh, of the scripture. And we find that if you do that, you actually more details come out, more understanding comes out, et cetera. So that's in episode 3.00. And then in episodes 3.01 and 3.02, we take some time to actually explain why we've decided to unpack scripture, why we think it's this magical, you know, divinely authored book, uh, why it's so helpful for your lives, et cetera. And then also how, how is one supposed to actually approach it? The unpacking approach, the hermeneutical approach, the love letter approach, you know, et cetera. Um, And so then we moved into the actual series. And so in episode 3.03 3.03 and 3.04, um, we started with hope in heaven, and we talked about how hope really drives people, and so we, that was the very first concept. Heaven, of course, is the ultimate fulfillment of that, and then we moved to faith, and so in episodes 3.05 and 3.06, we looked at faith and spiritual maturity, um, and because those two go hand in hand, and so what is faith, and what is spir- spiritual maturity, and how does it all work? Yeah. And so since the, this last episode was on the spiritual maturity, Zach, why don't you give us a quick recap? of what that entailed. Sure, I'd love to. Um, So 
we said a lot about maturity, uh, as you guys might have noticed, these podcasts have been going uh, a decent amount of time. So I'll just try and summarize that for you guys. Basically, what we talked about is we said that if faith is belief plus trust, and belief is that just uh, base knowledge and the initial sincere recognition that Jesus is Lord, and then trust is the response to that, maturity is really where uh, that process begins to go to the next level. And so you actually begin to uh, mature in your faith and just keep moving on. And that really goes back to the seven stage journey in season one where we talk about the difference between just the journey that people are in spiritually and the difference between being a boat-riding Christian and a water-walking Christian. And we actually see that a lot in Scripture. We see the three groups of non-believers, immature believers, and mature believers, and we talked about that. And then we also gave this definition of spiritual maturity that it's the gradual process of deliberately walking in step with the Spirit to enhance every necessary detail of our spiritual nature until we become the complete version of who Christ designed us to be. And so how does that work? We talked about uh, mastering scripture, mastering prayer, walking more consistently in step with the spirit, uh, just really diligently developing our faith by, as we keep saying, applying the details of the Bible to the details of our life. And then that results in God being pleased, others being benefit. Uh, We're really just made more resilient. And there's future authority and reward in heaven. And (laughs) we talked about how this is really a, a really difficult process, but it's the most rewarding one that you could ever go on. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't listened to it, to go back to the, the well, to all these episodes. But yeah. w- with the maturity one, it's such a key component of rekindling mm-hmm. of our paradigm and perspective is trying to get the, the lost into the boat to be found. Yeah. But then once they're in the boat and they've accepted Jesus as Lord, to get them out onto the water to really mature. Uh, and so it, it, it helps explain a lot of what we do. Yeah. And if this is your first uh, episode that you guys are listening to, again, welcome. Uh, and I would suggest going back, listening to the seven stage journey first, because that really is just an umbrella of everything that rekindling does. Um, obviously, episode 1.00 gives more about what what rekindling is specifically, but seven stage journey and then maturity, I think will really give you a baseline mm-hmm. for what we're really passionate about. And the seven stage journey is episode 1.01, I think. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. So so as one is beginning to do this, as they're getting out on the water, as they're maturing in their faith, what do you what 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 do you begin to realize? What is the the point of all the instructions in the Bible? What is everything kind of pointing to? How does the Christian life best play out? We have found through the unpacking, through our own research, et cetera, mm-hmm. that the answer is love. It really is the greatest thing, the most powerful thing. It's, it's a core essence of God. And so we need to pay attention to it. I know for me personally, you know, so I grew up in the church, having a prodigal son stage. When I came back from the prodigal son stage and was reading scripture again in its details, one of the first big things that had jumped out was that there, there is the boat riding sincere believing, but then there's also this water walking and growing. And so that was that, that was like a wake up call for me that I'm not supposed to just stay in the boat. I'm supposed to mature. But then also, as I went through all that, I could not get over how much talk there was of love. Like I grew up in the church, and so I knew that love was like sure, it's the you know it's the greatest thing. Da da. But I never understood the depth of it all. And so when I started getting into First Corinthians 13, which we're going to go into today, uh, and some of the and even just a, a number of passages, John 3:16, all these things. Um, uh, Realizing, wow, love is really important and the details of it, which is the whole point of the episode today, really getting into the details of what it looks like. I'm like, you know what? I am fully convinced that if this type of love was actually to play out in all of its details, it would change the world. 
Uh, and so, th- so that leads us to that. That I, I, you know, wanted to do an unpacking of it. Wanted to do this study. We also look at First Corinthians thirteen, where at the, at the end of the chapter it says that these three remain, or these three continue, or abide: faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So that was a, a verse for me that makes let's do hope and heaven first, then do faith and maturity, and then now do love. Keeping in mind then that. All of the other topics that we do from this point forward are all going to come back and hinge upon that faith, hope, and love, you know, et cetera. So I don't know if you guys wanted to add any insights as far as um, before we get into the details of it all, what you, the kind of the journey you've been on with love and, and, and picking up on it more, and et cetera. I think one of the things that really uh, stood out to me and kind of grabbed my attention was those first few verses of 1 Corinthians 13, where it talks about, you know, you can have faith that can move mountains and Mm -hmm. you can prophesy and you can speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if you don't have love, you have nothing and they don't matter. Um, So that really caught my attention to see the importance and the emphasis that scripture places on love. Um, in addition to these other good things, they mean nothing without it. Yeah, and and one thing I'll say on that is another part of this journey that I've been on is what if the Bible is true as far as what if what it's actually saying is the real thing? Hmm. Yeah. And so just to give you guys an example, because and we'll mention this again and again and again, so it sticks in people. A lot, you know, in our culture, if we say, "Hey, what's up?" or "How you doing?" we don't necessarily mean that. We might, but we don't necessarily have to. It's more of just a cultural thing to do. Mm-hmm. So, in Paul's letters in the New Testament, he always starts with like grace and peace be upon you. He has different versions of he says of that. And so, I think growing up, I just always just kind of assumed that was just a cultural thing. He just started a letter with it, and I didn't even pay attention to what he was saying. And he didn't even write most days; he dictated them. Um, but anyways, so it didn't necessarily mean anything. And then for whatever reason, I don't remember what triggered this, but I thought, what if he actually meant that so like when i when i when i started to understand like grace and peace and, and we unpacked them all what if like paul when he was writing these letters or he was he was saying them and someone and, and sothenes or whoever was, was sylvanus was writing them down um that he that you can imagine the passion you know he's just like man grace i really hope that favor rests upon you and peace that internal prosperity and all that that entails i really hope that rests upon you and, and i remember like thinking let me just read the letter as if he actually meant all that it was just like Boom! Like whoa, this changes things. You know, it really brings more color. So, with that in mind, when I when I read all these love passages, what if it actually means that, and it's yeah. not just like this figurative or general language? And so, so, so kind of going what you were saying when you read the first part of First Corinthians thirteen. What if that's actually true? Holy cow! <laughs> I should pay attention to that, right? Yeah, and it's really interesting how just as like a Christian culture, we're just like, yeah, love everyone, like love your neighbor as yourself. We we know the passages that talk about this. Uh, yeah, First Corinthians thirteen, that's the love passage. Good, do that. Um, but then when it actually comes down to it, we treat it much more as like um, really a generality. And so it's just like, yeah, in general, like kind of feel good about other people and that sort mm, of thing. Yeah, and uh, as I've looked into the details here. It's fascinating how, um, like, we're going to go through 1 Corinthians 13, and you're going to get to see how all, like, pretty much all of those words are actually verbs, and those are things that we're supposed to actively and continuously be doing. Uh, And when you act, like, if the church were to actually start applying this in an intentional way and move past memorizing Mm -hmm. what love is supposed to be and actually start doing what love is supposed to be, we would actually be able, like the world would see that we're disciples because of our love. And they would actually begin to say, no, th- there's something actually different about these people. Yeah, we, so we, we we did love as an unpacking a couple years ago when we first started the unpacking series. It was a primitive version. I was still working through how to put all that together. And so then we did a refined version just this time around. And both times, 
and, and I've, I've taught this like in other trainings and I've heard this multiple times where someone's this, this sucks. Why, why does this suck? Because before this study, I would have said I was loving, hmm. but now that I go through this study and I see all the details, I'm not, not that I'm not at all, but I'm not nearly, I'm only a fraction of loving. Loving is so much bigger than that. Go ahead. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of times we are being loving. Like Zach, me, myself, I am manufacturing something that looks like love. But that's not what we're called to. What we're called is this divine, biblical, the fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruit of Zach, the fruit of the Spirit. And so mm-hmm. allowing God's love to actually be through me, and that's something that I could never manufacture on my own. There's a ton of application that's going to come from all this. So as, as you're listening, uh, I hope that and this goes back, well, I guess we should probably say this most episodes, we're going to give a sheer volume of details through all of this. And if you're that detail-oriented person, you're going to eat it all up. If you're not the detail-oriented person, don't let it overwhelm you. Kind of just let us give all the details for those that want to hear it. But just for you, be looking for the key takeaways from all this. And we're going to go through a lot of this as far as like, if this is really what love is, which we think it is, what does it mean that God loves me? And so, we're, and what, and how should I love myself and love others? We're, we're going to go through all that. One other thing, I have this this thing in my head, and I want to say it now because I may forget it later on. Um, getting into why love is so important, um, we've talked a lot in the past about uh, anger and love and how do they play together and, and all that jazz. And and I've had people try to throw arguments out to me that you know you have to be angry at sin, otherwise, if, if we're not angry at sin, then we're condoning sin, and then sin will continue to win. Well, I don't hold to all or nothing absolute language. So just because I'm not angry, it doesn't mean that I'm condoning it. There's usually that middle ground in there. And so one of the things we talked about was it seems like anger, and and we'll do a whole unpacking on anger, but um, one of the things that we had said was anger will stop sin in the moment, but love is actually what transforms the sinner. And so if I live my life just always being angry, and, and I might try to label this a righteous anger, which is not necessarily a biblical thing, but um, if, if I just keep having this righteous anger, I'll keep sin somewhat at bay. Okay, I'm not going to argue that, sure. But if you become loving and you love your enemy, you're actually going to transform the sinner so that he sins less. Mm-hmm. And, that, and it's the much harder, but the much more effective thing. Yeah, and that's really the whole idea that we talked about in the maturity episode last time, uh, the replacement principle. Because you can sit there and you can be mad at things and just be focused on that. But if you actually flip, if you actually flip it and begin to love and move in a, move forward in a positive direction, it's so much more effective in actually growing, uh, which we talked a lot about last last episode. Yeah, so keep in mind as we go through this that, that you're going to be convicted, you're going to be encouraged, you're going to have a bunch of feelings and emotions as you, as you go through the study. So with that, let's go ahead and, and dive in. And as always, um, we're, we're, these unpacking episodes, we're breaking into four sections. And so the first section is um, how do you define this concept? So we're going to walk you through once we did the study, this is what we found. So this is basically what the Bible teaches. This is what this is. Then the second section is how does it work? What are the nuances? How do you acquire it or achieve it or refine it? What does it look like under the hood? You know, all the details of it all. And then the third section is what's the results of this? Like what's the benefit? or motivation to pursue this concept, or if it's a sin concept, to stay away from it, right? Um, And then the fourth question is, so now that I know what it is, how it works, what it results in, the fourth question is that application question. How is this actually going to change for me? Uh, Andrew Moreau's my, my pastor, has talked about how it's we want transformation, not information. Mm-hmm. And so these these podcasts are very inf- 
informative and lots of information, but our goal actually is still transformation. Our goal is that you feel more encouraged. Our goal is that you actually change and become more mature, you know, all that. So let's let's dive right in. So the first section is how do we define this? What is this biblically? So when we started the study, there were certain words. So we looked up all the love words. So love, loves, love, lovingly, beloved, lover. We looked up loving kindness, which then led to looking up kindness and kind. We looked up affection and affections. We looked up loyalty and cherish. Um, actually, I'm going to make this note now. We also end up looking up desire and pleased and delight in. We found that there's an overlap. So to desire something or want something um, or to be delighted in something or to be pleased with something, there is an overlap with love, but there are also some differences because it also kind of overlaps with joy and it's also its own thing. So we didn't do as much research into those for the specific, the delight we did, um, but the other ones we didn't. Um, and then also we realized as we were looking this up, some of these um, – other concepts of good, grace, favor, forgiveness, patience, mercy, compassion, all of these play into love. Love really becomes the umbrella element, but all those last ones that I just named, we actually end up doing an unpacking study on each of those. So this this love study is going to be the umbrella with a bunch of the details, but there's going to be a whole bunch of other studies that kind of come from that. So so those were all the, the, the ones that we ended up looking up. There's a total of 946 mentions, so 553 in the Old Testament and 393 in the New Testament. It comes out about the love concept is mentioned once every 2.4 pages in the Old Testament and is listed uh, every once every one or 1.1 times per page in the new. So it's mentioned even more frequently in the new. So, so those were some of the words that, that – those are the family. And we use the NASB, the New American Standard, uh, for these searches. So as we looked them all up, we wanted to pay attention to what are the Hebrew and Aramaic and, and Greek words that, um, that are translated love or kindness or affection or whatever in the English. And keep in mind – that what we're gonna we're gonna try to pronounce these a little bit, but we're, maybe we are not even gonna try. Maybe we're just gonna here's the next word. But we find that when you look at the the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek wording, and we we use a couple. We use the Strong's Dictionary. We use a BBC. We use a couple different dictionaries, um, and we're looking at these these scholars, and that they say, hey, this is what the ancient Hebrew meant, or what the ancient the Kononia Greek meant, etc. We actually find that a lot of times there's insights and nuances that come out from those definitions that don't make it to the English the English translation of love. Especially given the fact that love in, in the American uh, language can mean so many different things, etc. Mm-hmm. So this is why it's important to go through these words. So in the Hebrew, um, the the main the main word is mentioned 210 times is aheb, uh, and it means to love, to have affection for, to like, or to endear oneself to. Whether that's relationally, sexually, this also could be towards objects. Uh, it can be translated to flirt. And then the noun of that, the ahaba, um, is can mean love or affection. And, and before we continue, I want to add something to that. Um, I do this in the, in the classes when we have the whiteboard and I draw this out. I'm just going to say this real quick. Um, so aheb is uh, three Hebrew letters, basically the A, the H, and the, and the, and the B. And so that's the, um, the aleph, the he, and the bet. And in the Hebrew... Uh, each letter has a meaning. So the Aleph, which is the A, the first letter of the, of, the, of the Hebrew alphabet, it means like strong or leader because it's the idea that it's the first letter and it's leading all the other letters you know, in the alphabet. Um, and in ancient Hebrew, it was actually written out as an, like an ox head. Now you can see it's written out more as like a almost like an X. That's such a bad representation of it. Um, but anyways, so so that's Aleph. The Bet, the, sec- the B, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, um, represents family. And so in ancient Hebrew, it was, ri- it was drawn out as a tent 
like where the family would be. Now it's written out as like a, uh, a backward C kind of thing. So anyways, if you take those two letters, Aleph and Bet, they create the word Ab. And so if you take the meanings, it's the strong leader and family. So the word Ab means the strong leader of the family in the, by the letters. Well, the Hebrew word for Ab means father. So there's that connection there. So when you take the he, he is kind of like the H. The he in the Hebrew means like the essence of something or the spirit of something. Uh, and so if you put the he in the middle between the Aleph and the Bet, what you get is, so by those letters, you get the essence of the strong leader of the family or the essence of the father. And a heb is the Hebrew word for love. So just some really, really kind of cool stuff with that. So, anyway, so, so that's, that's one of the main words used in, in Hebrew. Next, we're going to look at uh, kased and kasid, uh, and that's this uh, picture of loyalty, faithfulness, joint obligation, uh, loving kindness, kindness, merciful, favor, uh, good deeds of devotion, being kind, godly, pious, and faithful. And then next is the word uh, dod, which is beloved, lover, and then it also can mean uncle. Uh, and so, and so those the Aheb ones are mentioned right around 240 times. The Kesed or Hesed ones are mentioned like 270 times. The Dods mentioned 61 times. Uh, Racham is is 46 times, and it means to love or have compassion or mercy or pity. Uh, we have choke, which is mentioned 37 times, means to enclose to the bosom or lap or cherish. And then Nave. Uh, which is used 10 times, and that's just lovely, beautiful, delightful, um, becoming, fitting, seemingly. And then another one is the the ch- chasik or chasik, which is also 10 times, and it means to cling to, have affection for, delight in, long for, or desire. And there's also a handful of other Hebrew words that are mentioned less that we just didn't put in the study for here because these, these are the main ones. One note on that. So I heard people say that, you know, love is not an emotion, um, it's, a, it's a choice to help people or whatever. Well, that's, again, is all or nothing things. And, and I understand where they're coming from because they'll explain themselves. We live in a society now where love is all emotion. It's all how you feel and all that kind of thing. And, and it's not that or it's more than that. Okay, there you go. That's the key. It's not that it's not that. It's more than that. But that doesn't mean that we need to de-emphasize the feeling part. Mm-hmm. So as we were looking at the Hebrew words and like this affection and delight in and cherishing, you know, and bringing to one's bosom or, or you know, that kind of deal, there was, a, there was an intimacy. There was, a, there was an, an emotional element to it. So that was really nice to see. Um, so then it's in the Greek, you have the main word is the, the agape or agapeo or agapetos, depending on if it's a noun or adjective or whatever. Total, um, those three words are used 200, about 317 times or so. Anyways, the, the uh, agape is that affection or goodwill or benevolence. It comes from the, the word meaning like a love feast. So there, there can also be a provision as well with that. Um, it can mean it's much love of person or things to be dearly fond of, please or content with. Uh, it, it can mean the, um, like the, the noun, if you call one somebody this, they're the beloved or they're the well-loved or they're very dear or very esteemed or they're a favorite. Next we have phileo, and that's mentioned 25 times. Uh, it means to be fond of or have affection for, to like or approve of, to be a friend of or kiss. And then we have the noun Philadelphia uh, mentioned six times. That's the brotherly love, kindness, fraternal affection. I feel like there's a city somewhere called philadelphia there is they have a football team that's not as good as the one from pittsburgh do they oh (laughs) (laughs) there's some divisiveness right there 
I'm sorry. Just, I had to. Yeah, I had hilarious. to. Of course, the Eagles are playing better than the Steelers right now. But um, we're not going to talk. Yeah, about yeah. It. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just stick with my joke. Um, yeah, mom, if you're listening, that was for you. <laughs> uh, so the next family of words is used about 18 times, and it's Crestos, uh, Crestostes, uh, Crestos, and Crestomiai. Sure. Uh, which is usefulness, goodness, just moral excellence, uprightness, integrity, or gentleness. Um, and then the root word is from the root of handling or furnishing what is needed. And so it's useful, good, virtuous, and then also just useful and benevolent. So one note on that, that last one, the Christuomai, means, means useful. But this is actually mentioned in the First Corinthians 13, love is kind. And so, you know, in English, kind typically means polite or nice. So when I was first exploring 1 Corinthians 13 and I got to the kind part, I was looking the Greek up and I saw it means useful. So when it says love is kind, love is useful. Yeah. That's more than just being polite or nice. I'm like, that's crazy, right? And it comes from that word meaning to furnish what is needed. And so the idea here is that contribution to well-being. Yeah. Um, and so that, I just thought that was interesting. Um, and then another one, and I don't even know how to pronounce it. The, you guys are teasing me ahead of time. The sp- <laughs> sp- I'm not gonna try, uh, but it's mentioned 12 times. It's it's the um, Strong's Concordance system. It's 4698 is the number. But anyways, the literal meaning is spleen or bowels. Uh, it's the and back in that culture, that was the internal seat of emotion and passion. And so so where the literal translation is spleen or bowels, it's implied to have some sort of internal affection for or tender mercy toward to have pity or sympathy. Um, and then again, another handful of, uh, of words in the Greek that were mentioned last times that we just, we just didn't bring into the study. So you also see here um, the, the affection, you know, and, and that tenderness and, and delight in. You also see this contribution. So, so we're seeing with the Hebrew, you're seeing like with the, the keset or the loyalty. Mm-hmm. So you, what we're seeing is there's an affection piece. There is an emotional piece of delight in, uh, uh, caring for. Um, or caring about. There's also this loyalty piece that you're committed, maybe sort of an unconditionality a mm-hmm. bit. And then there's also this contribution piece that you're actually tending to the needs and being useful to others. So even from these words alone, we're already seeing three things that emerge. And we're going to see a fourth one when we look at 1 Corinthians 13. Another little side note on this, going back to the agape and phileo. Some people have a rudimentary knowledge of this. Um, I think it was C.S. Lewis that wrote The Four Loves. I'm going to push back a little bit. I love C.S. Lewis. I'm going to push back a little bit on it. I, the way that, that I've heard it explained is that there's four types of love. There's the agape and the phileo, which we just saw here. And agape is like that deep, higher moral love. And then the agape is more like the friendly love. And then there's the eros. Or the phileo is more the friendly love. Well, yeah, 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 sorry, yeah, phileo is more the friendly. Um, and then the eros, which is more the erotic or sensual, which could be sexual, doesn't have to be. And then storge is like the familial love. And so a lot of people have taken with that and kind of run with it. Okay, so there's four types of love, and depending on who I'm with, I use one of those. I really want to have a scratch all of that. And I want us to come at this from the concept of there's love. There's only one kind of love. There's the divine love that, it, that God is and he's instituted and we're supposed to, to, to pursue that, embrace it and share it. That love is ridiculously nuanced and has all kinds of components to it. And so there, there's the agape component, which is that the, um, the fondness for. There's the um, phileo, which can also mean... So, so I wouldn't necessarily separate those two. I would say both of those 
actually highlight the affection piece mm-hmm. of love with also hinting at um, the uh, the the serving with the benevolence. And then the Christodes and those set of words would actually add more to that contribution, et cetera. So, so if you're familiar with the four loves or, or just in, in your own thinking, you think there's different types of love, I really hope that you scratch all that and realize there's love. And then love is just crazily complex. And that's what we're trying to break down here. So those are some of the, the Hebrew and Greek. And so always when we do these studies, then we pull up um, Merriam-Webster and Farlex dictionaries, and we look up all of those words in those, in those definitions to make sure we're really getting at the group of that. So we want to share that with you now. So we, we looked up love. The idea in the, in the dictionaries, it's arising, can, can arise from kinship or friendship. And it has a couple different meanings. It can mean a strong affection for, this intense emotional attachment to, or warm enthusiasm about. That's probably the general concept that our society thinks of Mm -hmm. when we think of love. So at least they have part of it right. Yeah. You know, um, there's also in the definitions an unselfish, loyal devotion to, which goes back to the the Kesed. Um, There's the benevolent concern for the good of another. Benevolent, by the way, means useful and contributing to the well-being. There's also the sexual attraction, which would be another component that that, um, society uses a lot, right? But so we see how these are still lining up with what the Bible would say. Yeah. So when we look at affection, uh, that's going to be a tender feeling of liking and caring for someone or something, watchful attention to them, and careful treatment of their needs. And then also just the idea of cherish, which is to hold dear, uh, the idea of treasuring. And so you just see them with extreme and precious value uh, and also to just keep or cultivate with care and affection. And then devotion, uh, was, you know, we looked up this word. It means to ardently, zealously be dedicated and given over to someone or something. Uh, benevolence, uh, like Shannon said before, that disposition to do good, kindness, generosity, contributing to that well-being. Attraction, just that really almost a magnetically drawn towards idea, uh, just being compelled to be interested, and then it can also be uh, sexual arousal. So that's like, so if you're attracted to somebody, it could be sexually. It doesn't have to be, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then affinity, I really like this one, because the idea is if you're loving somebody, you have an affinity towards them. So affinity means a natural feeling of kinship or compatibility, uh, an attraction or force connecting two things. That whole affinity, having that natural kinship with somebody, when hit me hard when we were going through the study. Next, we're going to look at kind and kindness. Like Shannon said before, that is that contribution. It's being useful, um, not just being polite. Uh, So having or showing a friendly, gentle, warm-hearted, sympathetic, generous nature and a desire to help others, wanting and liking to do things and to bring happiness to others. And so even like act of kindness, it implies that you're doing something useful, you're serving them. And then that whole idea of useful really just means it's the capacity to help in doing or achieving something practical or beneficial for another. Generous, it seems that love would be you're generous with all of these things. And so we looked up generous. It's, a, it's being liberal in giving or sharing marked by abundance. Uh, we looked up the uh, word desire. Uh, that means to wish, long, or hope for something. And then also just the idea of delight, and so having a high degree of satisfaction, enjoyment, or pleasure. 
So, so taking all the, the Hebrew and the Greek and, and, and these dictionary definitions, what we saw as we first started putting all this together, there were these three big things, which I just mentioned, three big components to love. There's that strong affection for or treasuring. It could be this natural or supernatural affinity and kinship with. That's the emotional connection. There's also this ardent, zealous devotion to. That's kind of the passionate commitment. Um, and then there's that beneficial kindness and caring for that generous contribution to well-being. So those are all some of the things that we were seeing as, as, as we went through it all. Um, so, so with that, so given all that, the, um, we know that love is a web, really, that touches and covers every other aspect and topic within Scripture. And, and so we found that there were – normally we would go right into the Scripture at this point. We'd look up the definition and we'd go there. But we actually had to pause for a second. We realized that some of the other unpacking studies that we had done um, played into love. And so it was important that you understood what what the conclusion was on that unpacking, unpacking topic because that will help you better understand what love is. And so we want to share uh, a little bit of that, of that with you now. Um, and so, so one of them – is the good so and we're gonna in a couple of episodes i think is when we record the good one i cannot wait um uh, so helpful doing that one but at its core biblically wh- what is good what does it mean what's the definition etc that, that there's basically four definitions or four layers to what good can mean biblically it can mean that something is inherently valuable or has an inherent worth it can be something beautiful or pleasing it can be something beneficial, whether that's spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, socially, or resource-wise. It can also mean something that is straight or moral, the idea that it fits within God's parameters. And so we're going to find that love wants good to happen. Next, we're going to look at uh, justice. So that's a making of things right. Um, by right, we mean whatever is loving, whatever is good. Um, so we're going to see that play out. Um, Shannon's lens of be, do, have is going to play in here. Um, so we're going to see that you can be just or righteous in character and behavior. So that's the be and do side of that, doing what is right, making things right. And we also have uh, the justified righteous in your standing with God. So the have part of that, your sin is uncounted. You and God have that right relationship. And right now we're just rapid firing each of these, but we're going to be doing a whole episode in each of these that will explain all that more, how we came to that conclusion. Yeah, and so the next concept that we have here is just grace. And so this is really in a pursuit of goodness and justice, which is why those two were listed (coughs) before this one. And it's really showing favor towards another person. And so there's a couple different components of this. The first one is really just delighting in another. And so this is just sincere goodwill, freely offering them generous, beneficial gifts. And I think that's more of uh, like the common definition of what grace is. And so that's Mm -hmm. just being fueled by your love for them. Uh, singling them out in delight, and this is those unmerited, awesome gifts. But then there's also another component that we see in Scripture where it's being pleased with another, and that's in sincere goodwill, offering them genesis, generous, beneficial rewards. And so this is actually a component of grace that's due to noticing their good actions and then giving them rewards for that. And so it's possible to seek and increase one's favor in another uh, in another's eyes through these good actions. So that's really a way that you can mm-hmm. show favor and grace is by doing that. And then also just forgiving sins is a way we can show grace to others, helping where we're needed, uh, just generously giving away money and lending without interest, relieving distress, offering gifts to people. And then to receive favor and grace, what we need to be doing is fearing God and doing 
good and being kind and useful. And those are straight from Scripture that if one fears God, God will show him grace, or if he's doing good or being kind. Um, and fear, by the way, we're going to do a whole unpacking of it. It's like biblically it's 99% being excited about God and 1% being afraid of God. It's not quite what a lot of people might, might think. Um, anyways, and, and, and real quick note on the good and the justice. W- to me, and I haven't sorted it all out to kind of present it in a formal setting, but I look at love, good, and justice as going hand in hand. So good at its core is that something beneficial. Love, among other things, is the desire that others experience good. And then just is the action of making those things right, creating the good. And so they, they go hand in hand really well together. Um, another study... So in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, right? And so we did a whole unpacking on patience and, and, and um, the definition. So, and it, so in the pursuit of goodness and justice, you're accepting and persevering through difficulty for other benefits. Uh, another way you can define this is choosing to allow and endure any kind of difficult thing, whether that's suffering, pain, tribulation, persecution, wrongdoing, temptation, sin, whatever, remaining internally steadfast and undefeated without anger or complaint, refraining from enforcing what may be due or right, instead responding with understanding, tolerance, calmness, and love, persevering towards some greater good or benefit, and then rejoicing in the results that arise. It pleases God, it exhibits yourself as a trustworthy servant of His, it creates harmony, and it really does give life to your bones. We're going to take a look at mercy, and this really is going to fall into two different types of mercy that we found in the study. Uh, So first we're going to look at compassion mercy, Uh, So having affinity for someone, uh, this idea of womb cherishing. So that Greek word that that we couldn't pronounce before of the spleen bowel. So like feeling it really deeply, this affinity that's that's coming from deep within you um, for someone being sympathetically aware of someone's distress and actively, practically, softly contributing to the alleviation of that distress. So justice is going to come in here as well. Yeah, good. And then the other component of that is that forgiveness mercy. And so that's grieving and healing from the loss that's occurred while at the same time embracing restraint in the midst of whatever's going on and then releasing oneself of any anger or resentment toward an offender. Then also uh, with forgiveness, refraining from enforcing what may be do or right at the time and then moving the responsibility for atonement, uh, which the idea of Atonement is that compensation for loss and harm to God. And so showing kindness to the offender by leniently pardoning and releasing them of any obligation or compensation or penance. Um, So that means that you're extinguishing their guilt and you're gaining or even regaining goodwill and favor towards them. And so this is really the whole idea of flight, fight, persevere. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just based on God's direction and uh, also just... Uh, the offender should be repenting and confessing and continuing to train and get better in that area. Yeah. So so we've looked up the original wording and definitions. We've kept in mind some of the related unpacking concepts. And so then with that in mind, we then turn to Scripture. And we're going to – two of the most important passages are the 1 Corinthians 13 and then Mark 12, 28 to 31. So we're actually going to take a little bit of time here and break that down and walk you through all that. Um and, and um, so with the First Corinthians 13, this is known as the love chapter. You hear it at weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. You know, et cetera. And again, a lot of times people just kind of give lip service to it. And so, Tori, you were mentioning those first couple of mm-hmm. verses that if you're not – you can do all this other stuff, but if you don't have love, it doesn't count. That gets your attention. 
So then Paul goes through exactly what that love entails, which we're going to go through here in a second. Um, and then it goes to more of like how eventually we're going to see the fuller version of this, you know, late, later on. But when I first started going through this, I was blown away by it. And when we, I think when we finish up today, I'm going to talk about a, uh, an actual situation that I was in where I applied this and it worked. Um, and how this is one of the strongest reasons why I believe the Bible is divinely authored. Uh, so we'll come back to that at, at the end of it all. So anyways, uh, if you're listening, maybe, or if you got your, your, script, your Bible with you, you can look at this. But So 1 Corinthians 13, and we're looking specifically, I think, in verses 4 to 6 or 4 to 8 here with these components. So it says, love is patient. And so we've already kind of touched on this. The, the Greek word macrothumia means to be long-suffering or long-spirited while not losing heart, to be persevering and forbearing. And forbearing is the idea of you're choosing to steadfastly endure wrongdoing, refraining from enforcing what may be due or right, responding instead with tolerance so that you or another um, can grow or some other good can be achieved. We're going to do a whole episode on that and how that's a dirty word when it comes to like, oh, I don't want to do that, but the importance of it all. So love is going to show that you're going to be patient in these things. Uh, in addition to that, we're going to see love is also kind. Uh, so we're looking at that Greek word christuomai. We, we talked about that earlier. Uh, to show oneself useful, generously contributing to the well-being of someone else in practical and helpful ways. By the way, I hope as, as we're going through this, as, as you're listening, that like your eyes are getting bigger. You know, it's like, whoa, I didn't know that. Because one of the things that we hope you actually come to grips with is there is no way you're ever going to be able to do all this on your own. Yeah. Which, yeah. Is, which is kind of point. We'll get into that later. And then uh, I just want to make a quick note because I went through and studied this for one of my classes. And it was fascinating to me that all of these words are uh, in the present tense and they're active. And so what that means is they're verbs that you have to constantly be doing right now. Um, and so as you go through, like, it's not just you're patient once and then it's okay. Uh, you're kind once and then it's okay. No, this is something that scripture is telling us that we have to constantly be working towards and cultivating, which is just super convicting. Yeah. Um, and so love is also not jealous. And so this means that uh, you uh, aren't fearing losing one's position. You're not resentful towards the good fortune or achievement of another. And you have warm feelings for them instead of burning with envy, jealousy, or coveting. Yeah, so one note on that, because like normally the Bible would say, don't be jealous. But then, you know, love is not jealous. But then also says God is a, is a jealous God. So the word itself, the zaleo, which is kind of where we get zealous, can mean that either warm feelings for or against somebody. So when it says that God is a jealous God, it's using the first part of that definition, that he has warm feelings towards another, so he's very protective of them. Um, where when it, when it says here, love is not jealous, it's talking about having the, those warm, kind of angry feelings against. Uh, that, that helps us kind of understand that better. Um, it also says love does not brag. And so it does not boast. It does not vaunt oneself up more than it needs to. It does not praise oneself excessively. It's not arrogant. So it's not inflating oneself, puffing itself up, making proud to bear oneself loftily. It's not having or displaying an overbearing, exaggerated sense of self-importance or superiority. And then along those lines, it doesn't act becomingly. And so it, uh, 
it's not uh, unseemingly, and so it really means that you're acting in accordance with the established standards of good form and taste. And so you're not being inappropriate, you're not being rude. And this kind of brings an interesting discussion of what actually determines what's unbecoming. Is it uh, like culture? What is that? And is love respecting people's preferences? So let, let's let's talk about real real quick then. So it, so depending on your translation, it says love is not unbecoming, or love is not inappropriate, or love is not rude. And the idea there is you're not doing anything that might offend or trip somebody up. Um, so according to the standards, right, the, mm-hmm. as you said. So we live in a society now where there's a whole lot of offense going around. People can be easily offended, you know, et cetera. So on one hand, I've heard Christians say, hey, I'm just going to be me. I'm just going to do the Bible. And if it offends somebody, it offends somebody. I don't know if that's the right approach to take. Um, having said that, it's not the opposite extreme where, like, you know, somebody says, listen, I get offended when you call, you wear the color blue. So if you love me, you'll never wear the color blue. You know, it's not to that extreme either. There's going to be a balance here in the middle. It reminds me of Romans 14. Um, the You know, you have freedom until it causes uh, someone to stumble, and then, then you lose that freedom. So Paul says, if you want to eat meat, eat meat. But those that don't eat meat, don't eat meat around them. And so this would kind of come back to this, that if you really love somebody, you're definitely not going to go out of your way to be rude or unseemly or unbecoming um, to trip them up. Mm-hmm. If they're super hyper, you can't ignore it. You can't totally play to it. There's a balance there. Yeah, and it's really interesting how with that Romans 14 passage, we tend to like the part that says we can do uh, like there's well, freedom and we can kind of do what we want. Uh, but we ignore the fact right. that on the flip side of that is we can do that up until the point that it causes someone else to stumble. And a lot of times I feel like our response is, well, they shouldn't be stumbling. It's like, well, that's not the point. Right. The point is that you're actually willing to limit yourself out of love in order to cause them to not stumble. And Paul says, by the way, the stronger, more mature Christian is the one that realizes there is freedom in that area. And it's the weaker Christian that doesn't, and so they get tripped up by it. But what he says is, if you're the mature, stronger believer, even though the weak one shouldn't be weak in that area and should recognize there's a freedom, they they don't yet. And so out of love and out of maturity, you will meet them where they are Mm -hmm. and not do anything to offend them. This goes back to the selfless. Uh, 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 Anyways, so it actually leads to love does not seek its own. Now, it could, this the, the the phrase there in the Greek means to seek, go about, desire, endeavor, inquire after oneself. This doesn't mean that you can't seek your own well-being. So, for example, in the greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. So you are supposed to love yourself. You're still supposed to seek your well-being. But when it comes to loving others, you're going to seek their well-being before you seek your own well-being. Yeah. Uh, love is also not provoked. So it doesn't have an urge to be annoyed, irritated, or angry. And I want to, this, this is one of my favorite parts. So I, I love, so NASB, um, Holman Christian, NIV 84, uh, NLT, these are all ones that I really like. And th- that, that's the whole spectrum, right? Yeah. Word yeah. for word and thought for thought. Anyways, I grew up on NIV 84. And in the NIV, it says, um, love is not easily angered. So when I first started doing all this kind of studies and researching, when I was looking up in the Greek, I found that the word easily isn't in there. So the English translation is love is not easily angered, implying that you might still get angry, just love won't be easily angered. But I didn't see it in there. And so also, and we'll do the anger study eventually, orge 
uh, is the Greek word for anger, and thumos is the Greek word for wrath. Neither orge nor thumos is mentioned here. Um, what's the word is the uh, paroxino? And so I found that, like, like you just said, Tori, it means that the, the literal meaning is to be sharpened alongside. So imagine, like, you know, two, two metal things sliding on each other. So, but the, so the idea is, is that you don't get provoked or irritated. Mm-hmm. And so love is not provocable hmm. or love is not irritated. And so it began to click on me that John would say in 1 John that God is love. And Paul now starts explaining what love is, including it's not irritated. So I'm like, well, hold on. Again, it goes back to what if the Bible actually is true in what it's saying? Hmm. So God is love. Love is not irritated. God is not irritated. Hold on. <laughs> that goes so against everything I've you know, been kind of brought up, the thinking about that God is constantly irritated because of all of our sin. Apparently this is true. He's not irritated. This doesn't mean that he condones the sin. He still grieves it. And we, we're going to do a whole sin study, which is huge. That will be a four-hour one. We'll probably, we'll probably split it into two. <laughs> yeah, at um, least two. <laughs> yeah. And so, so keep that in mind. But, but love is not irritated. And so if God is love and love is not irritated, God's not irritated with you. Mm-hmm. Let that affect you. Yeah, and then also uh, the next idea is does not take into account a wrong suffered. And it's interesting because as I was studying this, I don't remember if it was uh, under not provoking or not taking into account wrong suffered, but there was actually the idea in the Greek of um, love assumes the best intention of the other person. And so as you're going through... and I don't remember which one it fit into, but it was one of them. It, regardless, the concept is there that as you're going through and someone does something to wrong you, uh, you assume that they have the best intention no matter what. Which when you start loving your enemies, that gets really convicting really quickly. Um, but with not taking into account wrong suffered, it really, there's two parts to this, and it doesn't take inventory uh, of things that have happened Mm -hmm. Uh, and so specifically wrongs in this case so it doesn't take inventory of it and it doesn't think on evil and so it doesn't think on things that aren't right and so what this really means practically is it's uncounting wrongs committed and really just that whole idea of forgiving sins so it's an accounting term so when you know love love keeps no record of wrongs the idea is is it like so this is the forgive and forget Mm mm-hmm that I forgive you, but I don't forget. Well, then you're not forgiving them. It's implied in both. And so it's not going to take them into account. Another way to say this, too, is when I'm trying to, to figure out how I feel about you, Zach, mm-hmm. and you've sinned, I am, if I love you, I am not going to take your wrongs into account as I'm formulating how I feel about you. Mm-hmm. Now, do you see where this is so contrary to human nature? Yeah. And so there might be some that's saying, well, I can't do that. I know you can't do that. Of course you can't do that. But fruit of the Spirit, the first one is love. And so apparently, as you're actually walking in step with the Spirit more, you're going to become more loving, which means you're going to actually begin to take people's wrongs less into account. Yeah, and it's really interesting. If we were to be able to apply that idea, which we can't do on our own, like you were just saying, that has to be from the Spirit, uh, it's really interesting how it would actually be a lot easier to love our enemies because if we're not taking into account wrong that has happened with them before we decide how we feel about them, we would be much more prone to actually feel uh, kindly about them and good about them and actually biblically love them Mm -hmm. if we were to take just this one seriously. Yeah. And so let me ask you this. So if, if I'm not supposed to be getting irritated at sin and I'm not supposed to be taking it into account when I'm loving somebody, doesn't that just mean I'm condoning sin? Yeah. 
that's the unfortunate. No, uh, it, it does not mean <laughs> no, that. Let me yeah. let me quickly <laughs> quickly uh, dispel that joke that I poorly decided to make. There. <laughs> no, <that's good. laughs> um, no, it doesn't mean that. And it's really interesting though how it begins to look like it really quickly mm-hmm. when you start loving people and uh, like Jesus said, love the least of these. And so the people that are in sin, uh, it's not the healthy that need a doctor; it's the sick. And when you actually begin to go into those environments and invite those people into your church, and you have those people, and you're surrounded by those people, it looks like you're condoning everything that they're doing. It's like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine what they're doing. Uh, but there is some sort of fine line here where we really do, and it's cliche, but we do need to love the person. And yep. yeah. uh, that doesn't mean that we're loving the sin. Right. And so there is just that fine line. And when you see me in an invite, if you see me at a frat party, mm-hmm. it probably will look like I'm just there participating in whatever is going on. But you don't know where my heart is with that. Right. And so... Um, and this is really just the whole idea of if you're not spiritually mature and you're not going to be able to handle that situation, don't put right, yourself right. in that There's situation. Here, yeah. um, but it really complicates the idea because I feel like a lot of times we like to say, oh, I, I see what you're doing over there and that's wrong. You're condoning this. It's like, well, no, it's it's a lot more nuanced when you actually begin to get into maybe they're just trying to love people the way Christ told them to love mm-hmm. people. Um, and it goes back to the whole idea of assuming the best. If you aren't assuming the best intention when you see someone hanging out with um, the least of these or whatever, it's easy to say, no, no, you're just condoning it. Right, or if right. they're coming into your church and whatever, that church is easy on that sin. Uh, and it's easy to cast judgment really quickly, even though you don't know the full situation. So this brings up the importance of spectrum. Mm-hmm. So back in season one in the lenses, I think it's 1.05 or 1.06, you can look it up. But the spectrum lens is the idea of you probably really want to start moving away from a black and white thinking of things. There are a few absolute black and white realities in life. Right? There either is a God or is, there is not. It either died on the cross for our sins or it did not, etc. But beyond those core couple most everything exists on a spectrum. And so if you tend to think more black and white, you think I have two options when it comes to sin. I either can, can condone it or I condemn it. Well, I know that I, I'm not supposed to condone it, so I mm-hmm. must condemn it. Well, Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for we who are in Christ Jesus. So it seems that neither one of those is the right option. And there's that middle one here, which is kind of what all this is going into. So you're not condoning it and you're not saying that it's okay. You're recognizing that it is a wrong but you're not letting yourself get irritated by that and you're not taking an inventory of that where you're constantly reminding yourself of that. And so so there's that middle ground there. And it's interesting, uh, I don't know how far we actually want to chase this, but when you start getting into how do you respond to believers and unbelievers that you see uh, in sin, which we will talk more about in the sin study, um, but like there are passages that talk about you are to go to, if you see a believer in sin, you're supposed to go mm-hmm. and confront them, uh, which is a little different than what we were just talking about. But I think that it's important to keep that in mind as we're just going through this whole discussion. Yeah, we're going to do, we're going to do an episode on biblical rebuke and correction, which will go through all that. Um, short answer is you, you always have to love, and so you're accepting the person. You know, you're, you're letting them belong into your life and become a part of your life without condoning the wrong that they're doing. 
Um, and so if it's a non-believer, you still love them and accept them. And then you don't have to correct them of, hey, the Bible says this because they haven't committed to it yet. So for a non-believer, it's you, you love them and you accept them. You, you, you contribute to their well-being. You delight in them. Um, and then you introduce them to Jesus. Hmm. Uh, and, and understand that Jesus is the most crazy, important, awesome thing that's ever yeah. happened. So if they're already there, if they've already recognized that and they've confessed him as Lord, then now you don't need to introduce that to him. Now you can introduce him to the commandments and, hey, this falls outside the parameters and this is why it's detrimental, you know, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and so, so with all this, because um, because we we want to hear all of it the, the the two that we just said with the next two it's all four must be combined together so love does not get provoked or irritated by the wrongdoing of others and it doesn't take that wrong into account it doesn't let it you know it doesn't suffer it but it also does not rejoice in unrighteousness is is the next phrase there so it's not full of cheer or gladness about injustices or moral wrongs so it does not condone or celebrate mm-hmm. sin. Uh, it does, on the other side of this, rejoice with the truth. So we're not rejoicing in the unrighteousness. We are rejoicing with the truth. It does take great cheer and gladness with what is true. So it's rejoicing in the gospel. It's rejoicing in justice, what is right. Um, it focuses on and pursues, embraces what is true and right rather than dwelling on what is wrong. So so let's put these four together. If If I love you, Zach, and I love you, Tori, one thing is I rejoice in truth. I rejoice in what is right, what is good, what is loving, what is beneficial. Mm-hmm. I really rejoice in all those things. And I don't rejoice in what is evil. I don't condone it or celebrate it because I realize it's detrimental. It's, it's, it's unhealthy, right? So it makes sense. Love celebrates what is right and good and beneficial and doesn't celebrate whatever's detrimental. So that's, that's an important concept that you yeah. want to come to. Then, so when you, when, if I love you guys and you guys commit wrong, I rejoice and celebrate what is beneficial. I, I do not condone or celebrate what is detrimental. You guys are sinning, so you're doing something detrimental. So I'm not condoning it. I'm not celebrating it. But I'm not letting myself get irritated at you because of it. And I'm not hyper-focusing on that. So again, it goes back to this balance that when you actually put all four of those together, it really does make a beautiful, impactful, strong, transformative thing. And I think a lot of times as humans, we can't always find that balance. And so we either take a more legalistic type approach where we rejoice in truth and we do not rejoice in, in unrighteousness. And so we let ourselves get, um, get irritated when we see somebody committing wrong and, and, and we take that wrong into account. No, you're only half right. Yeah. Where we see others that are all about, listen, I'm not going to get irritated about what somebody else does. I'm not going to take that wrong into account. But then they're not really rejoicing in what is true and right and good. And maybe they do are condoning what is wrong. So again, you're only half right. It's when you take all four of those together that it really paints this cool picture. And practically, that is really, really difficult. Like, oh, yeah. We, like, we just spent some time going through what that actually looks like. And it's just like, well, yeah, you just combine these and you do these. You don't, you make sure that you're not bounce, falling off the wagon over here, not falling off over here. Uh, that's really hard, especially mm-hmm. to do practically when you're sitting across the table from a, a real life person uh, to actually say, you're struggling with this. Uh, what does that look like in order to help them through that? And just, there's a lot of different issues that that touches. But um, so, yeah. I don't think we plan for these tangents, but these are good practical things. So let me say one more thing before we continue in this list. Let's get raw and real for a moment. Um, if I have, if, if there's a gay couple that I know um, that are friends of mine and I love them and they decide to get married, do I go to the wedding or do I not? If we're trying to actually apply all of these definitions. 
I, I'll give my opinion, but I want to hear your guys' thoughts. I, I just, I'm putting you on the spot here. We, we didn't plan this ahead of time. Um, I'm going to answer and say that it's nuanced. And I think that this does come into, honestly, though, I think it comes into the Romans 14, um, what your personal conviction is on that. Because I know some people that um, they would be going against their convictions if they were to do something like that. But what's the, what do you mean by con- their like if, convictions? If they just have a conviction of saying, no, I can't go because if I go, then I'm saying that this is right and I'm like personally um, condoning what they're doing, uh, which I don't, which let me say, mm-hmm. I don't believe that that's really a, un, a complete understanding of what it actually means. It's to not go the to stronger, wedding. more mature understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do recognize that, like, I know people that they've had that sort of situation and they've said, no, I can't go. Mm-hmm. And it would be going against their conviction, which Romans 14 says is sin to go. And so it, it's a little more nuanced, but um, I think that it goes like, really it just comes into this whole idea of love um, that if I know someone that is in that lifestyle and they are doing that mm-hmm. personally, I think that I would be fine going. And um, because, and I don't think I would even need to like mess around with the whole, Hey, just so you know, I'm here, but I don't like, mm-hmm. I, this is bad. Like you shouldn't be doing this. This mm-hmm. is against scripture. I, th- I would hope that because of the relationship that I have with this person, they would already know where I'm at with this. Mm-hmm. And so then we can almost move past the fact that I disagree with the lifestyle decision that they're making and just focus on the fact that I appreciate them as a person. Uh, Cause I feel like too often Christians are really fast to just say, Nope, I'm not going to go. Not going to do it. And then they cut themselves off. And then we wonder why mm-hmm. uh, we're called homophobic. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it's just really interesting that whole that whole balance. Yeah, Tori, what are your thoughts? Um, I think that, like Zach said, this could differ from from one person to another based on you know if they feel convicted about um, is this condoning this lifestyle? Is this celebrating this decision? I don't agree with. Um, wherever you fall on that um, mm-hmm. answer, I think is going to impact. Um, whether or not you would be okay with going or whether or not you would choose to go mm-hmm. um, to celebrate that wedding. Um, but I think if we, we take a bigger look at what love is, so back up away from just what we see in 1 Corinthians 13, and we see this loyal devotion to someone, and we see um, this intentional uh, being watchful about their needs and this being present in their lives. So when we look at other things, um, I think that being there with people um, that you do love and you mm-hmm. are showing love to um, outside of the whole, is this condoning? Is this yeah. tolerating? Where do I fall on this? Um, yeah. So yeah. we're at, we, back in the summer, we actually recorded an episode on homosexuality uh, and same-sex attraction. And we're going to play that. It probably won't even get aired until the spring because I have a whole order of things I want to kind of play into so we can get to that. But I really love doing that one. Um, it's very raw. It's very real. We're talking about, you know, that, that it, it would fall outside God's parameters for what he's intended for man and women. Mm-hmm. But holy cow, is there a whole bunch of issues and factors? Yeah. And so we actually go through all that. So, so I wanted to throw that out there that and I actually have a lot of friends that are wrestling with or have embraced same-sex attraction. Um, and so it's a very real thing. So we're going to do a whole episode on it. Mm-hmm. So having said that, my thoughts on this are, so I want to apply the details of the Bible to the details of my life, all the comprehensive relevant things. And so I know that that as I'm loving, I'm not, I'm not going to condone or celebrate yeah. sin. Um, but I also am not going to let myself get irritated by it. I'm not going to take it into account mm-hmm. when I'm loving somebody that I truly want to have an affection for them. I want to, ha- I want to contribute to their well-being, you know, et cetera. So for example, um, 
if someone I have my officiant status. And so if somebody asked me if I would officiate the same-sex wedding, that I would decline because that to me would be a, a direct condoning or approving, signing off on. Um, but as far as going, absolutely I would go um, because if, if this is a, a couple that I actually care about mm-hmm. and I want them to know that I care about them, that they mean something to me, not just in lip service, but they truly are important to me um, and I want to contribute to their well-being, I, I, then I want to go you know, and I, I want to support them even if I don't support the ordinance itself um, because and I, I think also about Jesus. Jesus went to all the parties. He, he was known as a sinner and a drunkard and a glutton because he went to all the parties. So if he had said, hey, you know what? I don't condone this drunkenness and the prostitution, and so I'm not going to hang out with them. We didn't do that. He hangs out with them all the time. Yeah. And so, so what I'd say is, with, in both your points, you know, as far as the conviction, if, if you're convicted that by you going to the wedding ceremony, it's a celebration, that you'd be mm-hmm. celebrating that, and you're not supposed to celebrate it, then you wouldn't go. Then I'm going to respect that. What I would throw out there is it seems that that probably is the weaker, more immature, and that's bold of me to say, but I'm just going to say it, it is the weaker, uh, more immature understanding of the situation. And so I have to meet you in that weakness. Um, but it, as you, because look, again, looking at Jesus, letting Jesus set the, set the example, looking at all these definitions, and again, it's nuanced, right? So I don't, I don't want to say a hard, fast rule, you should go. Um, but, but I would just say, think through the greater, broader, bigger picture of what love is. Understand that Jesus went to all of these parties without condoning it. Um, and, and, and let that lead where it may. Would you say that another word that might fit into immature or weaker would be this, uh, like more of a simplistic understanding of the issue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I know like weaker and more immature can be uh, fighting words. Mm-hmm. I use them as more technical terms, so I don't mean it as a derogatory thing. Yeah, it's just yeah. as a technical. But yeah, if someone is hearing me using derogatory terms, then let me scratch that mm-hmm. and say it's yeah, it's a more simplistic, not full version. Yeah, that's good. All right, so let, let's continue with this then. So so it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It does rejoice in truth. And then you have the always passages. And real quick on this, um, I think in the, the, some of the translations it says it bears all things, hopes all things. It's a weird it's weird phrasing. Pas is the Greek word meaning always. So the way that I've rendered it here in the notes, it's, it's always bearing, always believing, always hoping, always enduring. I find that to make more sense to me than bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Just FYI. Yeah, and so the first concept there is just that it's always bearing, and so that literally means to put a roof over, to protect, to preserve, uh, and then more figuratively, it means to cover with silence or conceal. And this ties back to First Peter four eight, which says, "Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins." And so this, these always words really start to get interesting when you start looking into it because mm-hmm. um, it, it it says always, and so like what. What does that actually mean when you start getting into all of this? Um, and just bearing, it also means just protecting in the midst of tribulation and or just this concept of not exposing secrets and sins, which can have a lot of different implications. Yep. Um, and so it's just, this is a very broad understanding and term that Paul's using here. Yes, yeah, so let me say something. Like that. So, there's, so you just touched on the two points. On one hand, it means to put a roof over to protect and take care of. So it's always bearing. It's always putting a roof over and protecting and taking care of. It's also, at the same time, it means to, it's always covering over sin and not exposing it. Now, that does not mean it's hiding it. Okay? It just means it's not letting it get out to whoever it doesn't need to get out to. 
So I heard this explained once. I thought it was really good. A guy was talking to me about like marriage counseling when he's explaining this passage. And he says that imagine so he kind of draws out on a piece of paper like a, a basic house, like a stick house with the roof. And he puts the two, the wedding, the married couple underneath there. And he says, so the idea here is whatever happens in that home stays in that home. And so if one sins against the other, it's not supposed to come out under that roof. It's not supposed to be exposed to the world. Now, people say, well, hold on. You're saying they're just supposed to hide it. They're not supposed to say, no, 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 hear me out on this. This is how I explained it. The couple, when they get married, should pick either another couple that they both trust in or a, per- some pa- a pastor or some other wise, mature person they trust in. They both need to agree on who this is. And then they go to that person or couple and they say, hey, we're inviting you to come live under our roof. Not literally, but figuratively in the sense that when we do wrong each other, we're not because we love each other, we're not letting our wrongs against each other get exposed to the world, mm-hmm. but we absolutely don't want to hide it just among ourselves. It still needs to be addressed and engaged, and so we're going to bring you into that. And so so when one of us wrongs the other, because you guys are under that roof, we're going to go confess to you. We're going to go bring this up so that it can, it can get engaged and dealt with, et cetera. This could also go with legal things, that, that legally there's certain you know, crimes or sins that need to be reported. That's not exposing it to the world. It is exposing it to the, the police authorities that need to be a part of that. So the idea there is that when, when if you love somebody and they wrong you, you, you can and should bring that wrong up to qualified people, whether that's a spiritually mature pastor shepherd type and or a legal type, depending on what the wrong was. Mm-hmm. But that's as far as it should go. And so this, um, what's the, um, the website, TMZ? Um, and just this gossip nature and culture that we live in, love is not going to expose all that. It's going to bring it to the people that need to hear it. And so there's a balance. There's some discernment that comes in with that. Yeah, and I don't think uh, what I'm about to say Paul was necessarily thinking of, but this doesn't mean that you should – basically what this is saying in another way is you shouldn't be on Facebook posting about everything that goes on that's going wrong Wrong, with whatever relationship we are in. Bring it to who needs to know it. Yeah. Not just publicly throw it all out yeah. there. So it's always bearing. It's also always believing. And so this goes back to the faith. It's pistuo, same word from the faith study. And so it's having faith in, giving credit to, and entrusting. One note on this, usually what I hear is what that means is it's always believing in God. So you're always trusting in God as you love. And I would say absolutely. I would say it might also mean you're always believing in the other person that you're trusting them, or a greater word to say here is you're entrusting them. And so, for example, you want to trust trustworthy people, but one of the ways to make somebody trustworthy is to entrust them with opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea like you you forgive 70 times 7, it'd be the same type concept that you entrust 70 times 7. So if I entrust you, Zach, with some opportunity and then you fail it, I entrust you again and you fail it, and I trust you again, then we're done, three strikes, you're out. No, I just have to keep entrusting you with these opportunities that eventually it'll begin to click for you that, oh, maybe he, he considers me a trustworthy person. doesn't guarantee it, but, but love is going to be willing to do that, which means love is willing to be hurt in the process of giving somebody opportunities to become more trustworthy to grow them. Yeah. Yeah. And we're also going to see that love is always hoping so it's going to expect or have confidence in holding on to positive expectations. Um, I think this applies to uh, hoping in the Lord, of course, but also hoping in others as you are entrusting them with those opportunities, thing, yeah. hoping that they'll choose right, they'll choose to do good 
with those opportunities. And so that goes back to seeing the positive potential. Yeah. Love is going to see the positive potential in people. And then, so think about this for a second, putting those two together, love is always hoping, always believing. It, love will always see the positive potential in somebody. Mm-hmm. And so love will always entrust them with opportunities to develop that. They're going to fail. And so love is going to allow the failure. I mean, this, this starts to get very uncomfortable, very, very mm-hmm. difficult. It's, it's really going to challenge your selfishness and your self-protection. But yeah. it's a beautiful picture. And it's interesting because up to these always words, you can almost – you can think through and you're just like, yeah, I, I can almost start to do these things. Like yeah. I, can, I can – I mean it's obviously going to be hard, like being patient, kind, uh, all these different things. Uh, but maybe I can start to do that. And then we start getting into these always words mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, my goodness gracious. No, I can't. Uh, and so this really just comes back to it has to be the Holy Spirit through us. And then like you were just saying with um, bearing, believing, and hoping – uh, as you're holding on to positive expectations and you are believing that people, giving people the opportunity to um, prove themselves and all that, we also have to, love is always enduring. And so that really just fits right in with those other uh, absolute yeah, yeah, terms yep, there. Yep. Um, that you need to stay under, remain in, bear calmly, persevere even through misfortunes and trials. Uh, and then really, uh, this is... Uh, choosing to remain in the midst of some tribulation to keep helping where it's needed, which is another one of those things Mm -hmm. that as you start going through, it's just like, what is this whole love thing? Like, oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. It's the standard is so much higher than we, even as believers want it to be like, there's the statistics that, um, like divorce rates in the church and outside the church are the same. Uh, and which is tragic mm-hmm. on a couple different levels. But like when you actually start getting into this sort of thing, it's fascinating that we don't see this as a priority in applying the details of this. And so we're much faster, even as believers, to go that route of things, mm-hmm. even though this whole concept of love does apply beyond the marriage right. covenant. So so look at those, those four, the always there. You are always going to hope... And look at the positive potential of somebody. You're always going to believe or entrust them with opportunities to become trustworthy. You're always going to bear and put a roof over them, not exposing their their failings to the world. And you're going to choose to endure the wrong in the, in the meanwhile. So like you just said, this becomes huge. This takes it to another whole level. And so there's going to be a lot of people that say, I don't want to do that. So that must not be what it means. And what we want to encourage you is, nope, this is what love includes. So this is where you're actually going to start checking yourself when I say I love you (laughs) Um, because you're going to be thinking through these things. So take a step back for this just for a second. As we go through all this and and, and we're realizing, holy cow, because what we're doing is we're thinking about people that we don't want to love, we don't want to do that to, Hmm. right? Well, honestly, it's a flesh thing. It's a a selfishness thing um, that that love would actually overcomes all of that. And love, this this best case scenario, perfect love, this is what love does. And you can see where it's actually a really good thing. Mm -hmm. So like like if I'm loving somebody and I'm doing those four always, um, and this would also still tie into the rejoices and the truth and all this together, right? As I'm bringing all that in, I'm actually doing that. If I remain committed and consistent and steadfast with that, over time, it dramatically, doesn't guarantee, but dramatically increases the chances of that person changing. Hmm. And so one of the things that we're to understand is God is all this. 
So God, and we're going to get an application later, but God does all this to you. And so what I would say is if you're thinking of certain people that you don't want to apply this to and so you're already shutting out, just stop yourself and don't think about your application of this stuff towards somebody else. Don't do that because it's just, it's just going to cause you to quit. Think as, as we go through all this, think through first that God does all this for you and let it overwhelm you, make you cry, move you, etc. Begin applying it to yourself and, and, you know, and, and we'll eventually get that. We're going to go through a sequence of all that stuff later on. Yeah, and so this really is just that whole idea of we love because God first loved us. Mm -hmm. And I think we can all really begin to see um, when we were talking earlier and saying that if we were to actually apply this as believers, we would see massive differences in the church, in the world. Like when you actually begin to think through what a practical application of this would be, it's a whole lot easier to see how it would be different and how this is so different than just feeling nice about people and the sort of cultural definition of love that we tend to settle for. So, so then the last one, it says love never fails. All this is in two and a half verses. And so he finishes with love never fails. And so when we did the study, we found out that in the Greek, like the hyper literal kind of word for word translation is love, not even at any time does it fall, get thrust down or fail. So when it says love never fails, what it's saying is love, not even at any time, does it fall, get thrust down, or fail. So it's perpetually, steadfastly continuing. It's uncorruptible, untainable, almost irresistible. So one of the things here is is if you're trying this stuff and it's not working, love's not failing because love itself, if done right, actually accomplishes all these things. It's just you're not being as loving as you could. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense to kind of yell at you. It's just recognizing if I walk in step with the Spirit, the first fruit is love. Love is all this stuff. And so if I'm trying to get all this stuff done and it's not working, it's just the fruit hasn't developed enough in me, which means I'm not walking in step with them enough yet. So I just need this goes back to the maturity. So I need to be walking in step with him so that I can do this stuff more, right? So, so taking all that, it's just a remarkable chapter. Taking all that, we'll go through this next section pretty quickly here, but we, we, we regrouped this because I think Paul, like, as, he was, as he was dictating this, he was just kind of you know, shouting all this stuff out and they were writing it down. So if, if we, we see that there's groupings here, and there's basically three groupings. And so we see that one, love is not hyper-focused on self. So it's not arrogant or bragging. It's not self-seeking or envious. It's not unbecoming. So it doesn't consider myself higher or better than others or focus on hyper focused on my achievements I'm not worried about what I don't have that others do um, I'm, I'm doing what I want to do oh I'm not doing what I want to do regardless of the established propriety or preference of others so it's so love is putting others before self that's one key thing we, we take from this Next, we're going to see uh, love is not focused on wrong, so it is rejoicing with the truth. It's not pursuing unjust or immoral things. It's not keeping wrong of the records that I or others do. So we're showing love to ourselves here, even mm-hmm. not keeping record of the wrongs that we have done, true. forgiving ourselves. Uh, we're not getting angered or provoked at the wrongs that I or others do. Um, rather, we're going to be patient and endure all of those wrongs. And just real quick to reiterate this. To not let yourself get anger or provoked at wrongs, to not keep record of them, to, um, and to be patient with them, it does not mean that you're condoning them. It's two different things. On the surface, they can look the same, like you said, Zach, earlier, but they're not. And so you need to learn, I'm not condoning it, 
but I'm also not condemning it. I have to be in this middle ground. And I actually just want to quick highlight something you said that the love is also something that we have to do to ourselves. Yeah. And so like, I I think like even just going through this now, my mind is just blown with (laughs) what love could be as I try and love others. But then also if I were to take this view on myself, how much more effectively I would actually be able to spiritually mature. If I'm not taking wrong into account, I'm doing all of these things, even personally, it's incredible to think of the level that I could be at. And so that's something else that, uh, as you guys are thinking through all this, think about that aspect of this as well. Just sit down with the Bible, look at 1 Corinthians 13, and think about what that actually means. First, at a personal level. Well, I mean, first, because God loves you. Mm-hmm. And so that's really just all of those things is the description of God's uh, intentionality with love towards you. And then really you need to be doing that to yourself before you can even begin to pour that out to others. Yeah. And see, we're still in the first section of what love is. As we move into the second section, we'll get to how does it work, how is it applied, mm-hmm. etc. That's where – so some of you may be kind of jumping to trying to apply some of the details. And that's great. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind there's more to it yeah. you know, as well. So go ahead. And then also, uh, so love isn't focused on yourself. It's not focused on your wrongs, which allows you to actually be focused on doing what's right. And that makes us morally excellent and virtuous. And so what does that really look like? We need to first take cheer in all of the truths of God. And so what is right according to him? We need to observe his statutes and commandments uh, like we see in 1 Kings 11.38. What are his commandments sum up as? And that whole idea is that we love one another. Mm-hmm. And so that's Mark 12, 28 through 31. We see that in Romans 13, 8 through 10. Uh, and so if we have sincere affection for people, loyalty to people, kindness towards self and others, we actually will be fulfilling the commandments. And so we see that in Proverbs 3, 3 through 4 and uh, 21, 21. And then also it allows us to be to want to be useful and contribute to others' well-being. Because if we don't have love, we're never going to be even to that point. Then it also just hopes and expects that anyone can change. Mm-hmm. And so we give people the opportunity to actually change and grow and pursue what's right. And then it, it really just protects them through this whole process if we have this view of others. I'm so convinced that this would change reality. And I'm equally convinced that this is ridiculously hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So And so it says, in love is, is always this way, no matter what the situation is. And so one of the things that we're seeing from this here is you had mentioned the sincere affection for and loyalty to and kindness. So we, we're now seeing a fourth element. We knew from the wording that there's the affection piece. There's that loyalty committed piece. There's this kindness, usefulness, contribution to well-being, serving piece. And now we're seeing there's a fourth one if there's this attitude or perspective piece um, that, 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 that we're going to find in a second how all four of those come together. So, Tori, you had mentioned this at the beginning with the, the first couple of verses before this section and then also the verses after. I just want to touch on this real quickly. Yeah. Um, so Paul says that, so this is to all my charismatic friends. By the way, I, so I'm not a cessationist. I believe that all the gifts still exist. Um, but I also have my, my charismatic friends that like, hey, let's, let's rein you in a little bit. There's some rules that you're forgetting, some details, etc. cetera. Um, so Paul says, listen, you can speak in tongues, but if you're doing it without love, as, as explained here, it's just noise. And he says, and listen, if you have prophecy or you have knowledge or you have faith, so the charismatics love the prophecy part, you're more like cessationist or you're more legalistic type, they love the, the knowledge part. Mm-hmm. Everybody recognizes the importance of faith. Yeah. If you have all those things without love, Paul says, I amount to not even one thing. 
That's a bold statement. Um, he says, I can give away all of my possessions. I can surrender my body you know, for, as a sacrifice for somebody else. But I'm doing it without love. It benefits me in not even one way. This is in, in the Greek. Um, and so that, that, that goes back to, boy, we should pay attention to this. Yeah. Um, and so then at the end, afterwards, he says, now listen, so knowledge and prophecy and such things, they're only partial in this life. Um, and that will cease when the perfect comes. And I believe that the perfection coming um, is Christ returning and, and establishing his eternal kingdom of heaven. Um, that's when perfection comes. We will see God in all of his awesomeness with crystal clarity, and we will begin to fully understand who he is and what he desires, and, and such is his greatest commandment to love. Um, and so given all this, if I want to be a mature follower of God, I must put away childishness yeah. uh, and now begin to love in exactly the way God commands me to, as Paul explains it. So this goes back to the, the wedding thing. Um, and so know this, faith and hope are continually important, and love is the exceedingly greatest and mightiest of all of them. It's such a powerful chapter. So that's 1 Corinthians 13. Then we'll look just real briefly, but I love this one. So Mark 12, 28 to 31, this is um, showing that love is the foremost greatest commandment. It really is the chief prescription prescription in importance, impact, and order for living well. I was looking up the, the Greek in that passage when the when the guy comes to Jesus and says, what is the greatest commandment? What does greatest mean? And, and we go into all that. Um, and so what does is, what is, uh, foremost or greatest mean? It means in, um, in, in, uh it's first or chief in importance, impact, and order. And what does command mean? It's a prescription of how to live life. So the most important chief prescription um, that has the greatest importance, the greatest impact, and the greatest order for living well is to love. Yeah. And so then he, and then he says, he says, um, so we are to love, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so what we see is there's three big components. We need to love God, we need to love ourselves, and we need to love our neighbors. Our neighbors being anyone who's nearest at the time, whether that's friend, family, stranger, enemy, etc. Um, and it, we need to do this with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this is where everything began to click for me. Um, when we first did the study, a year and a half ago, whatever it was, we're putting all this stuff together and we're trying to make order of it all. Um, and I, and I'd, I'd always liked that Mark 12. But I remember, so, so we know that there's this affection piece. We know there's that loyalty piece. We know there's that contribution to well-being piece. And now we know there's this like mindset perspective, how you're viewing piece, right? And so what I realized is it all began to click. That's what heart, heart soul, mind, and strength means. So to love God and others and self with your heart, that is that emotional feeling element. And then to love with your soul, which to, if I understand correctly is the will, it's, it's, it's kind of the core of who you are, that, that the essence or breath, it, that, to me this would represent that willful, loyal, covenantal commitment part yeah. of love. And then to love with your mind, this is the disposition element. I love, I love that word. The dis, it's your disposition. It's kind of your how you're feeling thing. It's your attitude, your, your perspective. And so you're, this goes back to those three points. You're focused on others before self. You're focused on right rather than wrong, etc. Um, and then strength is that active component. So this is the physical forceful element. This would be the active contribution to well-being. So so right from the get-go, this was the theory because we hadn't gone through the scripture yet. But as we went through the scripture, it got confirmed that what does it mean to love? Um, you love with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love with with a um, strong feeling of affection and then a willful commitment as you're focused on others before self and right rather than wrong and then you actively 
act on that and, you know, and contribute to it all. Um, and so, so that helped us kind of create an umbrella to fit all these different um, components into. So I'm looking at my notes here. Um, yeah, so, so then, sorry, then we went through the rest of Scripture. And by the way, so we, when, we, when we do these studies, the way we do the assignments, so, so we'd gone through all of the um, original wording and definitions, and we'd gone through the other unpacking things, and then we looked at 1 Corinthians um, 13 and Mark 12 and really got a good picture of all this. Then we said, now let's go through the rest of Scripture and find every passage we can on love and figure out what's going on here. And so when we do these unpacking assignments, we split it into the Torah, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then we have the historical books, which is Joshua through Esther. Then we have the wisdom literature, which is Job or Yoba through uh, um, Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. Uh, and then we do the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, and then we do the gospels uh, and Acts, and then we do the epistles and Revelation. So we split them into those sections, and then we assign people the homework assignments, and they read through all the passages. So all that to say, what is the concluding definition? So you know, we're an hour and holy cow, an hour and twenty-six minutes into getting into the definition. So given all this, what is the definition of love? So I'm going to give the, the wording that I put together, and then Tori, you can give yours, and, and, and Zach, you can add some insights here. So for me, love is, um, of the heart, a strong emotional affection for, delight in, and supernatural affinity and kinship with. Love is of the soul, a willful, covenantal, committed, passionate loyalty to. Love is of the mind, a mindful disposition of others before self and of, of making things right, including patience and forgiveness towards wrongs. And then love is of strength. It's that powerful, active contribution to well-being, including compassionately tending to needs and generously showing favor to, whether spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, socially, or resource-wise. And all of this is to be towards God, others, self, and creation. So, so that's my, 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 my definition. Yeah, yeah. so the have? definition I um, ended up with um, is that four parts as well. So we see the heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, so love is that strong affection deep in the gut. I loved that mm. language. Um, oh, cherishing the, the womb. The and... depth of your being is, is where this affection for someone is coming from. Um, it's treasuring and delighting in them with watchful attention. Um, it's also coupled with that zealous, loyal devotion to them, a strong bond and covenant. Um it isn't going to be easily moved. It's persistent. It's faithful. Uh, it's choosing to put them before yourself and to seek justice for them. You want to see that good mm. come to them and that right happen for them, showing compassion, mercy, and forgiveness to them, um, and sincerely and actively contributing to their well-being in abundance. So that love feast picture that we saw earlier uh, from the Greek agape. Yeah. Um, so th there's this abundance of, of goodness coming to them, uh, bringing them into your fold of kinship and friendship, because we saw that's where yep. that affection starts. So bringing them into that, that circle, uh, meeting their needs, serving them. Um, I think disciplining, correcting, and training also comes in here because uh, you're wanting to see good and, and contribute to their well-being. And sometimes that is discipline and correction and training. Um, and it's maintaining or cultivating all four of these uh, towards God, others, and ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And so just some random other uh, thoughts that I have is, one, this is just a messy process. Yeah. Like as you actually go through loving another individual, uh, it's not some like nice little cookie cutter Hallmark movie um, picture of what love typically typically is like this is hard 
uh, and it has to be done intentionally. You're not going to half-heartedly work your way into some sort of love and just everything involved in those four aspects that both of you were just describing. This can't happen unintentionally. Right. It's not going to happen by accident. You have to be constantly and actively pursuing this. And then really, um, just some of the stuff that I was saying earlier, we love before God because God first loved us. Mm-hmm. And so we would not be able to do this if not by the Spirit's power and just all of that. And then really, um, like Paul, like we were talking about Paul describing at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, this is just so foundational. Uh, just because if we aren't doing everything else in the Christian life from the perspective of love, it amounts to nothing. Mm-hmm. And so that really just goes back to the whole idea of uh, faith, hope, and love being so important. Uh, you have to have faith. You have to know that Christ is the Son of God who came for your sins and for my sins. have to know that. You have to ha- uh, Hope is what really just carries us through. It gives us the motivation that we need in order to really do the Christian life in a meaningful way and move beyond just the um, generalities into the specifics and really give us um, the... I don't want to, I don't know how to say this, but like the next level of Christianity where we can actually begin to enjoy it and move beyond just following rules to uh, just having that personal relationship and cultivating that because Mm -hmm. of the expectation we have. And as we do both of those things, it has to be out of the position of love because if it's not, then everything else that we're doing just is meaningless. Right. And so just that whole, (laughs) just that whole idea enveloped into that. And I feel like so often we're just content to say, yeah, faith, hope, and love. Those are great things that we need in the Christian yeah, life. Mean? And we we give lip service and we memorize that they're important in all this. Or we, that we understand at least the surface simple, though. Yeah, yeah. it's just like, yeah, the, those things are important. Those are core, whatever, whatever. Uh, but when you actually start getting into it, like, this should change the way you live. This should impact every single facet of your being as you go through life trying to do this whole Christian life thing. Yeah. So that's the first part. Um, you know, what, what is love? And so we're hoping that this is starting to click for you, that it's the, um, the heart affection, the soul's commitment, the mind's patience and forgiveness and understanding and empathy, and the body's contributing to the well-being or the, you know, the strength. Um, and so, so I, I, what I want to say is, Please trust us on this because we've done this unpacking twice now and we've looked through all these verses. This is what the Bible describes love is. Um, You can come up with all things of how it's not working or why it won't work, etc. But understand that is what love is. So now we're going to move to the second part, which is, okay, how does this work? Um, What are the nuances? How does one acquire it? How does one hone it? How does one spread it, etc.? So this is where we're getting a little bit more into the application or kind of the nuts and bolts where where the rubber meets the road. And so one of the things, the first thing you need to do is you really do need to understand the depth of what we mean when we say that love is of the heart and of the soul and of the mind and of the strength. So we're going to kind of rapid fire some more details with some of the scripture um, to this section. So when we talk about love is of the heart, that it's this strong emotional affection for delight in and supernatural affinity with, this is where the, the Hebrew word aheb and the Greek word agape come up. The, we saw this a lot in the Song of Songs. We also see it in Proverbs. We also see it in First Thessalonians 2 and, and 3. That of the heart, it means that you're beholding beauty and value. There's a passionate treasuring. There's a longing to see, a seeking after, inviting in and vulnerably sharing life with. And there's, it's unashamedly, lavishly celebrating the object of your affection. 
uh, when we look at the soul, it's that willful uh, commitment, loyal devotion, covenantal faithfulness to. Uh, so we're going to see this in Romans 12, 9 through 19, 1 Peter 1, 22, and again in 4, 8, 1 John 3, 18, John 15, 13, John 14, 15. Um, the sincere, pure, fervent, and earnest devotion. It's not lacking zeal. Mm. Uh, it's in truth and in deed. Both of those have to be there. Uh, it's a willingness to lay your life down for someone. So mm. it's that faithfulness, even if it costs you something, even if it costs you your life, you're still devoted to that person. It's a humble obedience to God, keeping his commandments. And then a third component of this is just the mind. And so it's an intentional disposition of always desiring good for one another and, I mean, really all people. Mm. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 15, we need to rejoice in the truth rather than unrighteousness. We've been talking about that a lot, 1 Corinthians uh, 13. Uh, this also includes making of things right and just and speaking and doing. And so Micah 6, 8 talks about this, Proverbs 14, 22, Romans 12. This is compassionate empathy, truly seeking to understand how a person's wired and what they're going through. And so it goes beyond, um, like, there, you really do have to get to know people in order to love them well. Right, right. Um, and so also it's patiently forgiving people's wrongs. And so mm-hmm. we're going to talk we're, whole episode on uh, patience and mercy, what that actually looks like. Um, we're also going to touch on that in the sin study. What does it actually yep. look like to forgive someone when they sin and that whole idea? Uh, but we see this discussed a lot in Luke 7, 47, 1 Corinthians 13. Yet again, there's there's a theme here, 1 yeah, Corinthians yeah. 13. Uh, and then 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, uh, 13. And so what does that look like? It's bearing and enduring the sins and struggles of others, covering over sin, not disclosing it, not creating discord, Proverbs 10, 12, and 1 Peter 4, 8, grieving the wrong without anger, bitterness, resentment, or irritation. So that's Genesis 6, 6, Ephesians 4, 31. You're not going to take revenge. Uh, instead, repay the evil with good, Romans 12, 9, uh, refraining from enforcing what may be do or right in the moment and moving the responsibility for compensation off the wrongdoer and onto God because he's already taken that himself. Love that. Um, not taking wrong into account. So th- you're extinguishing their guilt. You're regaining full goodwill towards Proverbs 16, 6. And you're willing to reconcile, uh, which this... <laughs> Their uh, confession comes into it, uh, mm-hmm. how they're actually feeling, but there still is this component of regardless of their role in this, you need to make sure your role, you're working towards reconciliation. Yeah. Um, not putting, you both need to be t- having your part in reconciliation. And all those points you just mentioned are, are what forgiveness is, and we're going to do the whole unpacking on yeah. that. So, so one of the things too is if you're getting overwhelmed by all this or you're still not quite believing in all of it, as we go through all these other unpackings, you're just going to see all this stuff overlaps and confirms each other. Mm-hmm. And really sets this amazing picture. Yeah, and so uh, also just as we're thinking through what love looks like being in our mind, it's not unbecoming or rude, and it's not provoking others, Galatians 5.26. It's not causing any to stumble, but Mm. making every effort to what leads to peace and mutual edification, just this whole Romans 14 idea we've referred to, living in peace and harmony with one another, Romans 12. And then honestly, just honoring one another above yourself and regard each other person as more important than yourself. And so that's Romans 12, 9 through 19 again, and uh, Philippians, I believe, 2, 3. And one note on that, there's a fear of, well, if I'm 
seeing others as, or their needs is more important than mine, then mine's not getting taken care of. Well, best case scenario, you live in a loving community. And so I'm, I'm putting your guys' needs as more important than me, but then you guys are putting my needs as more important yeah. than you. Yep. And so best case scenario, it all works out. All the needs are getting taken care of. Mm-hmm. Now, love never fails. And so if the others aren't doing it, you still will do it. Yeah. And, and that means you're not going to get as taken care of, but God is going to reward you for that loyalty. Yep. And lastly, we are going to look at that strength element. So that is that active, abundant, practical, sacrificial contribution to well-being. Shannon, you mentioned earlier that could be in a number of different ways. So it could be spiritually, emotionally, mentally, Mm -hmm. physically, socially, or resources that you're giving to someone else. Um, So we're going to be hospitable. We see that in Romans 12, 9 through 19. We're going to be serving and helping one another as we're needed in Galatians 5, 13, Philippians 2, 4. Uh, rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn. We see that in Romans 12. Encouraging the faint-hearted and helping the weak, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Caring tenderly and gently, 1 Thessalonians 2.7. And comforting and treating with tenderness. We see that in 2 Corinthians 1, again in chapter 2. Uh, protecting, rescuing, saving. We see that in 2 Samuel 22.20. 20. Uh, again in Psalm 146.9. And again in John 3.16. Um, and there is this aspect of blessing and showing favor and grace as we're contributing to that well-being. So we split the the strength part into two parts. The first part was everything you just read, Tori, as far as like meeting needs and serving and taking care of. The other part of actively contributing to one's well-being is to train, develop, hone, build them up, make them stronger so that they send less. Um, and so we see that you're going to be sharing the gospel or the good news, 1 Thessalonians 2.9. You're going to be provoking others to love and good works, Hebrews 10.24. You're going to be teaching kindness, which includes uh, establishing Establishing and protecting kings. This was from Proverbs 20, 28. You're going to, this is great. You're going to diligently identify wrongs and prune to what is right, Proverbs 3, 12. So this goes back to why it's not condoning or blowing off. Mm-hmm. You identify the wrongs, you grieve the wrongs, you don't celebrate or condone them, but then you're, you're moving past that to try make, making right happen. So you're going to speak truth. You're going to teach, encourage, implore, exhort, rebuke, admonish, discipline, and correct others to walk in a, in a man are worthy of the Lord for those that are unruly or those that are in opposition. And you're doing all of this restoratively and gently, not harshly. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 to 12, again in 514, 2 Timothy 2, 25. So there's this idea that you're, you're and, and you, you reluctantly, willingly use suffering uh, when needed and then relenting when needed. So when I say that, by the way, that's that wind sprint analogy that I feel like we, we I'm sure we've brought that up at some point in one of the, the episodes already. Um, I believe it was in Muddy Fields that we talk about that. Yeah. Extensively. So go back and, and, and listen to that because and we'll do it again in the sense that the, the short of it is um, imagine two, two, say two football coaches and their teams both lose over the weekend. One's a really healthy coach. One's a really unhealthy coach. The unhealthy coach is ticked off that his team lost and he blames them. So all week long, he's going to make them do wind sprints for an hour after practice just as like a retribution or punishment, like a negative reinforcement. Oh, you don't like the, the uh, those wind sprints, do you? Well, stop losing and you won't have to do it again, right? So then that, and that creates a, a, a negative atmosphere, a critical atmosphere. You got people leaving the team, you know, and, and, and honestly, because of all that negativity, you're going to lose more. 
mm-hmm. right? Where the healthy coach, he looks at the loss and says, now we don't want to lose. Our goal still is to win. Now it's not just their fault. I'm the coach. I take ultimate responsibility for this. Um, but he looks at it carefully and he realizes, man, you know, in the fourth quarter, we ran out of gas. We ran out of energy. So that's why we lost. So what we need is, is more energy, more gas to go four full quarters so that we can win more games. How can I get the team to get more gas, more energy, you know what, lung capacity. I need to build their lung capacity so they can, they can do that. How am I going to build their lung capacity? Oh, they're not going to like this, but you know what, wind sprints. Wind sprints will build, will build their lung capacity. So I'm going to have them do wind sprints for an hour every day after practice. Now I'm going to do it with them, and I'm going to explain to them why I'm doing all this. Um, but that will help making them stronger so we win more games. So what's fascinating is both the healthy coach and the unhealthy coach have their team do wind sprints after the loss. But the unhealthy coach does it as a punishment or retribution. The healthy coach does it as a training to make stronger. I'm fascinated with that. So if you love somebody in this section as you're disciplining them, as you're training them, The idea is you may make them do wind sprints. They may go through some kind of suffering, but it's for some beneficial good with all kinds of right motives with that. Um, And so you're edifying, building up one another. This is 1 Thessalonians 5.11. And then we mentioned this before from 1 Corinthians 13. You're always trusting in and hopeful, both God first and foremost, but also in the potential of others. And then there also is the physical intimacy part of love so with the sex and so that you can see this in songs you see this in first corinthians 7 and so that's another component it would seem that god wants that component only to be for the spouse mm-hmm. and not for anybody else um but that would kind of come under that strength or that or that body you know part of love so so those are some of the of the details of of what love actually looks like in, in each of these kind of four c- components so the next thing that we want to discuss is what are different ways to acquire or hone or increase that love. And so this gets into some of the practical applications. So now, you know, you're a little bit overwhelmed by everything that we've just said. Um, we want you to oh, kind of push past the overwhelming and realize this is a lifelong goal. God is already there. God has already arrived. He already perfectly does all these things. You need to begin baby step two steps forward, one step back, stumbling, bumbling approach, um, piece by piece, begin to add more of this, not of your own power, as you, as you pointed out, Zach, that, that this is a walking in step with the Spirit, but um, and then slowly over the course of your whole life. So don't try to sprint to this full version of love. Slowly, steadily walk to this full version of love and know that in heaven, it'll be the complete rendering of this. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to the heaven study that we did, that in heaven, apparently, everybody is going to be this way all the time. So we talk about there's no more drama, there's no more sin. Um, You're going to have everybody having affection, maybe to different degrees and playing out in different ways, but everybody's going to have an affection and a kinship with an affinity for each other. Everybody's going to be loyally committed to each other. Everybody, well, there's no sin in heaven, so there's no more forgiveness of sin, but everyone's got this mindset of truly trying to get to know each other so we can understand each other. Um, And then everyone's going to be actively contributing to each other's well-being. Like heaven is going to be freaking amazing, you know. Um, so, so, So be patient with that. Yeah, and as we're going through, we have thrown a lot of different things about like what love actually looks like, what it's supposed to look like, the different components of it. And if you are at a point where right now you are just overwhelmed with what love is supposed to be and what it could look like, we really would just encourage you guys to just pause here, take a little break, um, because we're going to move into more of some of the more practical, like how to acquire love, how do you increase it, and that sort of thing. But we don't want to 
minimize what the Lord might be teaching right. you right now with what love is supposed to look like. And so if you're in a spot where you're just like, oh, man, I, I need I need, take a break. Mm-hmm. Just we really do want to encourage you that that's completely fine. Like we understand that we just threw uh, an hour and 45 minutes worth of material at you guys. And hopefully you can tell that all of us are really passionate about this. And we hope that that's come across. Um, and if you are trying to figure out more of that and you need to just take a break, all of that to say, just go ahead and this would probably be a good spot to do that. Yeah, I'm glad you said it because um, I've been studying this for seven years. And then we did these two four-week unpackings and we did all these other unpackings, but, you know, 16, 20, 32 weeks of unpackings that we're summarizing into two hours or two and a half hours or whatever. Um so good point, Zach. Pace yourself. One of my goals actually is to put this. Is, my goal is to put this on all the episodes or most of them is to put timestamps, so that when you're on Podbean and you can look at the at the podcast information, it'll say um, the, so. Part one starts here. Part two starts here, etc. Mm-hmm. And so you know where to kind of come back to. So I'm glad I'm glad you said that. So we'll pause. <laughs> and you guys can sign off. Now we're back. So now you're ready to get into some of the, the acquiring and, and increasing the love and, and how does that work. So one thing is we found that, that it's not all or nothing. There's definitely degrees to love. And so you can increase. You should be seeking to increase your love with God's help. So, for example, 2 Thessalonians 3.5 says, May the Lord direct our hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So you need to let the Lord, this goes back to your point, Zach, you can't do this on your own. You need to let the Lord direct you into this. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 says, May the Lord cause our love for each other and all people to increase and abound. And so there's always going to be the increasing and abounding as directed by God. 1 Thessalonians 4.9-10, If you love one another, excel even more in that, Paul says. And then in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, I really do like the Thessalonians, both of them. There's a lot of cool stuff in that. Um, we can give thanks when our faith is enlarged and our love grows even greater. So all of those passages show show you this is not a sprint to the full version. There, there's a degree to this that the Lord has to lead on. Um, and then also with that, so then getting into um, how can we receive this or become more loving. One thing is I need to keep myself in the love of God and I need to snatch others out of the darkness to join me as well. And so, so I need to rest in God to get this love more. I need to, to not abandon my first love, which is Christ, Revelation 2. I, I also shouldn't be disregarding the love of God. I should be thinking about this stuff continually. Um, it's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. Walking in step with the Spirit and being led by the Spirit is how this develops, Galatians 5.16-25. through 25. And I love God because He hears my voice, Psalm 116.1. So all those would say one way to receive love and become more loving is just to sit with God. Uh, another way is is to remember that love is per- perfected through obeying God's commands. So when we are being obedient to things that he has commanded us to do, we can receive love and become more loving. Uh, we, If we sow righteousness, we will reap steadfast love. That's Hosea 10, 12. Uh, retain the standard of sound words in faith and love, which are in Christ, and guard the treasure entrusted to us. That's 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Uh, we want to be examples of devout, upright, blameless behavior, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.10. Obedience can bring affection. Um, we don't want to disregard justice here. We want to remember um, the importance of bringing about what is right and okay. what is good. 
And then, as we're doing both of those things, just spending time with God, obeying his commandments, we need to realize that this is a pursual that's going to happen over time, and it really is uh, just practice makes perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to be united in spirit and intent with our one purpose. Uh, Philippians 2.2 2 talks about uh, just fixing our eyes on Christ. That's more uh, Philippians 3, but just that whole idea, um, making sure that we do have the, just the one purpose with a pure heart and good conscience uh, and have sincere faith, First Timothy uh, 15 Somewhere in 115, yeah. There we go. Uh, And then also just this process has to be done with humility, which is another concept we're going to unpack in later episodes. But just that's Romans 12, 9 through 19. We can't be self-seeking. We can't be arrogant. We can't be boastful. And we can't be envious. And we saw that in 1 Corinthians again. And then as we go through this, it's not going to be this nice linear line where right. we're just uh, we just figure this all out and we just keep chugging along. It's like we've talked about two steps for one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, three steps back. Like this whole process of gradually working our way up because as we're learning how to love well and love in this manner, God's going to test your love. And so it's really fascinating how when we begin to actually do this, then we actually begin to see how bad we are at doing this. Mm -hmm. And so then we can um, really actively work on pursuing love in a more intentional way. So just sit with God, be more obedient to his commands from scripture, and then intentionally pursue this over time. These are all things that will help you develop more of that love. So let me give you guys a proposal now or a theory Um, that I think this might be a practical way, a very step-by-step approach to becoming more loving. So what I would say is you kind of go God, self, others, and I'm going to explain it all. So the first thing is understand, so so don't get into, holy crap, I got to apply this to this person. Don't get into any of that yet. The first thing you want to do is, is understand that the triune God, this Father, Son, and Spirit, they already love themselves perfectly. And so just ponder on and picture that. Begin to slowly comprehend what the full version of love includes and results in. So understand, kind of go back to this four-part definition. So the triune God, they have strong affection for each other. They're loyally committed to each other. They fully understand each other. And they don't need to be forgiving of each other because they don't do any wrong. Um, and then they're constantly contributing to each other's well-being. So just allow that, just this triune God loving himself even before creation. As you're beginning to comprehend that, then you can think about how God loves the world. He loves everyone and everything that he's created. So let yourself believe that and receive that. And so the idea there is understand that that the triune God has a strong affection for all of the world. He's loyal. loyal. So if you go back to John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And you take this definition and put it in. For God had such a strong affection and kinship with the world. For God was so loyally committed covenantally to the world. For God was patient and forgiving of the world, really understanding that they were made of dust. And for God so desired to constantly contribute to the well-being of the world, both meeting needs and refining them, that he sent his one and only son. Right? It just, it just, holy cow, that's just an amazing rendering of that verse. And so God really is the, the perfect example of what this love looks like. So know that he, he delights in steadfast love, Micah 7, 18, that it is steadfast, never ceasing, or it's enduring forever. You see, it's all throughout the Psalms, that the earth is full of his steadfast, abundant love, Psalm 119, 64, that he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, Psalm 145, 8, that he allures and 
speaks tenderly, Hosea 2.14. The Lord is kind in all his works, Psalm 145.17. Because of his love, he shows us grace and favor, Psalm 119.32. We can see in Daniel 9.4 that he keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So we see that again, the importance of keeping the commandments and being obedient. Uh, he has chosen us for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth, 1 Thessalonians one. 4, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 and Titus 3.4. He has rescued us, adopted us, made us alive. He has given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. We see that in 2 Thessalonians 2.16. He gives to and provides for his beloved sheep in Psalm 127.2. He works for the good of those who love him. We see that in Romans 8. He loves and delights in those who pursue righteousness and obedience. Cheerful givers. He loves those who pray and he uses them for his kingdom work. He will comfort and strengthen strengthen our hearts in every good work and word. We see that in 2 Thessalonians 2. He disciplines, so he trains, builds up. That can include those wind sprints that you were talking mm-hmm. about, Shannon. Uh, he does that with those that he loves in Hebrews 12, 6. He hears our cries and he relents of hardship because of his covenant with us. And we see that in Psalm 106, 45. And then as we see God delighting in steadfast love, as we see him keeping his covenant, we really see that embodied uh, when he died for us when we were still sinners, Romans mm-hmm. 5, 8, and John three sixteen. Just And that honestly is just the center of the gospel mm-hmm. right there. Uh, just love and the fact that God, while we were still sinners and we were far from him, we were ignoring him, we weren't doing what he wanted us to be doing, we were ignoring the good things that he had for us, that's when he showed us love. When we were as against him as you could possibly be, right. and I could rant about that for a long time, but I won't. Um, so see that Romans 5, 8, John three sixteen, and then nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans eight thirty five. Um, there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that happens in this world. Romans eight, it goes through and lists a bunch of different things, mm-hmm. but really just the whole idea is that we can't separate ourselves from the love of God. And so he's going to rejoice over us with gladness. He's going to exalt over us with singing. We see that in Zephaniah three seventeen. And he lo- and we also see this embodied in how he loves and delights in his son. So really just the book of Matthew we see this in, and then Second Peter 1, 17. And that goes back to this trying God loving yeah, themselves, right? Yeah. So step one, start to just chew on and ponder the fact that this triune God has these aff- affection for each other, commitment, all that. And then step two, apply that to the world, like the John three sixteen, and to you specifically. So this can be very, very difficult. But what I want you guys to, to, to and again, maybe you get to pause it, right? Just think about this for weeks or months before you come back. Who knows? But you need to understand that God has a deep, strong affection for you. And he is loyally, covenantally committed to you. And he patiently, forgivingly understands you. And he's constantly contributing to your well-being if you'll let him. Um, and, and sometimes a lot of Christians, they wrestle with that. They know technically in their head that God loves them and others, but experientially in the heart, they haven't done it. So this, this may take some time, but one of the things is Paul was convinced of that. He says, nothing can separate us from this. Hmm. So this is probably going to take some time. And, and, you, and, I, and to me, you don't really need to go to any of these other steps until you accomplish this one, where you begin to accept the reality that God has a strong affection for you. He is committed to you. He patiently understands you and he's contributing to your well-being. And let yourself become convinced of that. As you do, you're then ready for step three, which is to apply this to yourself. 
So you need to have a strong affection for yourself. You need to be loyally, covenantally committed to yourself. You need to be very patient and forgiving of yourself, understanding how you work and that you're made of dust. And you need to be contributing to your well-being, meeting needs, and also sharpening yourself. And as and as you're getting, and I used to argue that you should love others first before you love self. But then I started realizing that kind of practically, even psychologically, if you're not doing this to yourself, you're not going to do a full version for others. And it's kind of like concurrently. Um, but but you know anyway. So but make sure you're applying it to yourself. Yeah, because with that, like you're not supposed to be. I well, this is lifelong pro, a lifelong process, and so I need to do a lifelong process of learning yeah, to love right. myself before I can love other. No, that's not what we're saying. Right. But you do need to have an understanding of what it looks like to love yourself and be working towards that. And so you can begin to do yeah. the same process in others. Yeah, you need to be initially applying this to yourself as then you begin to apply it to others. Because uh, even like the Mark 12, it says to love your neighbor as yourself. It's already understood that you're loving yourself. Yeah. So step one, understand that triune God loves himself perfectly. Step two, that, that God actually loves the world, including you and buying into that. And which means, by the way, that God also loves ISIS members and God loves rapists and God loves thieves and, and, and career criminals and, and God loves the ungodly. I mean, you know, you mentioned that earlier. He he applies this to everybody. Um, anyways, so then once you're um, step three, uh, two is uh, receiving it, and step three is applying it to yourself. Then step four, now you can begin to apply this to your loved ones. So to those like your family and friends that are closest to you. So make sure that you're having a strong affection for them. Make sure that you're loyally committed to them. Make sure that you're understanding them and being patient and forgiving of, the, of their sins. Uh, and then make sure you're contributing to their well-being, serving and meeting their needs and, and refining them. And then as you begin to do that, now you can go to the next step, which is to do that to the strangers and the randoms in life. So people you meet at Walmart or on the street or you know for a short time, acquaintances at work even, coworkers, um, that you you want to develop. And and I really do believe that it kind of needs to go in this order. But I I believe that this starts to become like a a rapid current and it just takes, uh, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It it takes momentum, Mm -hmm. right? And just keeps going. And so you'll find yourself actually having a strong affection for and kinship with an affinity towards anybody that you meet um, and that you want to be committed to them in the moment as you know them and that you're going to be very patient and understanding and forgiving of them and that in the moment you're going to contribute to their well-being in some way whether it's a meeting in need or refining and then I believe that as, as you're beginning to do that long term then I believe you get to this amazing step where you begin to love your enemy where now you are finding yourself having a strong affection, treasuring and valuing your enemy because they're a human, because they're a person, because God re- uh, made them. You're going to find yourself that, that despite their wrongdoing, despite that they are your enemy, you're going to choose to be covenantly committed to their well-being. And so you're going to be patient and forgiving of the wrong that they're doing. You're going to really understand why they're doing it, not as a condonement, but as an explanation. And so then you're going to contribute to their well-being because hurt people hurt people. And so you're going to meet their needs and you're going to refine and sharpen them. So we always hear love our enemy. Now when we take this definition and we apply it to that, right, like mind just being blown. And so for me, if you're not there yet, you're not there yet. 
And so you need that's that's why I like this or this sequential order because I think it's a practical, realistic order. Um, but know that you should never stop at any of the stages. Um, and again, like you said, it's not get all the other stages only before I begin to do that. They're all like kind of one half step in front of the other as they're all being stepped concurrently. But to me, one of the greatest signs of spiritual maturity is not how long you've been a Christian. Um, yeah. One of the greatest signs is are you willing to love your enemies? Um, and I think it's I think it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And I think as you begin to understand this definition, it will change. We're not going to go into all the details here, but it'll if you're a more conservative Christian, it'll change the way you think about liberals. Um, it'll change the way you think about criminals. It'll change the way you think about ISIS. Um, it, it'll again, you're not condoning any of the wrong that they're doing, yeah. but it's going to change things. It really, really is. And I think that a lot of that change, because um, we see just in our culture, it is so divisive in us versus them. And um, as we actually begin to spirit, spiritually mature, this is, a, this is still a progression, um, and we work through uh, recognizing that God loves us, us loving ourselves, beginning to love others, loving strangers, loving our enemies. Like, when you actually see someone that does this in an intentional way, you can't like you. You can't really get mad at them. Like it's the sort of thing where um, I believe it's in First Peter three fifteen that it talks about uh, living in such a way that those who basically uh, speak out against you are ashamed because there's not actually any like there's no substance to any attack that they can put on you because you're living in such a selfless way and showing them the love of Christ. This is really why. The Bible says that people will know that we're Christians by our love. It's not they'll know that we're Christians because we like each other. We like the people in our little circles and we um, give money to people on the side of the street. Like, it's, it goes so much deeper than what we commonly expect love to be and what we've heard that love is. And when we actually begin to apply this and we actually get to the point where we can legitimately love our enemies and we want the best for them, Mm. we are purposely trying to um, work towards cultivating their well-being. And we're doing that in an an intentional and public way. It's transformative. Not only for you as your mindset changes, because in order to serve them in that way, it's so anti everything that your flesh wants to do. Um, And so not only is it transformative for us, but it's transformative for the believers around you. It's transformative for them. It's transformative for the unbelievers around you. Like when you actually get to this point where you can do that, it just changes everything. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the Bible is talking about when it says that this is what it's all about loving others is the greatest commandment after loving God. And this is how people will know that we actually are believers in Christ. So if you're listening right now, and let's say you're not a believer, um, so you don't you think Jesus is, is not God or you're not for sure yet or wherever you are with that, and maybe you're kind of anti-church and you're anti-religion because you see some of the really bad things that the church has done. Uh, I get it. <laughs> I do, and I'm not going to argue with you. Um, that when we go through this type of definition, it shows you the church throughout its history has done some really incredibly loving things. It's also done some really incredibly unloving things. Yeah. And so, what I want to say to to the non-believer, um, or maybe someone who's more to the left, that you really feel love is like a condoning that you let somebody do whatever they want to do. No, love is going to rejoice in what is right and good and beneficial. 
um, and it's not going to rejoice in what is detrimental. And, and, and the scriptures have explained, and we need to trust in this, what is beneficial and what is detrimental. And so if you really love somebody, you are absolutely going to accept them, but you're not going to rejoice in or condone or celebrate the detrimental things that they're doing for, to themselves or for others, and you're going to step in on that. So I want to challenge you to kind of come a little bit to the middle there, right? Um, now, then to the Christians that are more, say, to the legalistic side, stop. Like, like yeah. and I've done it. Like, I've been that, and I still am that way sometimes. When, when we don't live love this way, we're not sharing the best version of what we can share. We need to stop being irritated at others. We need to stop taking wrongs into account and hyper-focusing on them. We do need to refine and train and discipline, but notice that comes last. So it's like, like if you want to... Um, really like let's let's say you let's say you're more the kind of the conservative type and more a little bit more strict and you want to refine somebody and exhort them and rebuke them great that's biblical but you can't do that until you're first meeting their needs and you really can't first do that until you're patiently forgiving them of their wrongs and understanding who they are. And you're probably not going to do that until you're loyally, covenantally committed to them. And you're probably not going to do that until you have an affection for them. And you can't really have an affection for them unless you're walking in step with the Spirit, maturing in your faith. So this is to, this is to everybody in the world, whatever, wherever you are on the spectrum. This is to myself, to you guys as well. We need to really be walking with God so that we can be freeing ourselves up to have this stronger, deeper affection and cherishing of all those around us, committed to them, understanding and patient with them, contributing to each other's beings. Then we can get to the refining part, which then becomes cyclical, etc. So I want to encourage all of us. We really need to step up in this. We really, really do. Yeah. So, so with that, um, we know that some of the language we're looking at, the, it's a labor Right, Genuine love is a labor. The labor of genuine love as an example of those who believe and are servants of God is to be coupled with other things. This was in the study. We saw a bunch of these things. So as you, if you're a servant of God, you need to step up in love. If you, if you consider yourself a mature believer, you need to step up in love. As you're doing that, you need to pair love with faith and hope. This was from 1, Timothy, or 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, 4, 5, 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, 1 Timothy 1 and 2 and 4 and 6, 2 Timothy 1 and 2 and 3, Titus 2 and 3. Um, pair, pair love with faith and hope. We also want to pair it with knowledge and the word of truth. We see that in 2 Corinthians 6, 6 through 7. And then thirdly, we want to make sure that we pair it with righteousness and godliness, as we see in 1 Timothy 6, 11. You also want to pair it with the spirit of power and discipline with weapons of righteousness. This is 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 2 Corinthians 6, 7. We're also going to pair it with gentleness and peace. We see that in 1 Corinthians 4, 21, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, and again in Jude 1, 2. And then really, as we show love, uh, this needs to be done coupled with joy. If we're not joyful while we're going through this, people will not only notice that, but <laughs> it won't be nearly as legitimate of love. And we see this in uh, Philippians 2.2. Yeah, the joy of the Lord is my strength, which will give you the strength to, to go do that. Um, we've touched this already, but love needs to be paired with patience, perseverance, and endurance through persecutions, afflictions, hardships, tumults, uh, stresses, sufferings. This is 2 Corinthians 6, 4-5, 1 Timothy 6, 11, 2 Timothy 2, 22, 2 Timothy 3, 10-11, Titus 2, um, verse 2. Uh, we want to make sure that we're loving in speech, conduct, purity, and purpose. So all four of those areas, we see that in 1 Timothy 4, 12, 2 Timothy 3, 10, and again in 2 Corinthians 6, 6. 
And then also we need to have kindness and that idea of loyalty and truth, certainty. And those really just go hand in hand. And Proverbs 3, 3 talks about writing them on the tablet of your heart. And so making sure that we have those things in addition to love. And in Titus 2, um, Paul talks about for older men specifically, your love should be paired with temperance to be dignified and sensible at the same time. And then for older women, it needs to be uh, coupled with being reverent in behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to wine, teaching good, sensible, pure workers at home, uh, subject to their husbands. And so you can see how love filters in to all the other areas of Scripture. Yeah. But then at the same time, uh, it's important to note that there are hindrances to love. And there are things that if uh, you decide to um, really just be walking in the flesh instead of the spirit, that love isn't going to work out the way that it's supposed to. And so what does that look like? Well, you could be focused on self. You can be focused on the wrongs and sins of others. Uh, You could be angry, stiff-necked, unfaithful, just this laissez-faire, hands-off attitude. Uh, You could, I mean, honestly, just be tired, fatigue. Um, If... Unmet expectations can really play a huge part into that. Um, And then really just at a much broader level, spiritual warfare. Uh, It's really fascinating how um, Satan knows how impactful this can be and should be in the lives of Christians. And so I really do think that this is one area that the culture has perverted in a lot of different ways. Just what is, like nobody knows, what is love? Um, And there's songs about it. There's all this different stuff. There's um, just the sexualized culture that we have in equating love with um, that sort of image and all this other stuff. Just all of these cheapenings of what love truly is in contrary to what we've just discussed, a biblical definition of what love really is. Yeah. So who specifically are we to love? We've already been talking about that, but let's just reemphasize it. Um, Mark 12, 30, you're, you're to love the Lord your God. Mark 12, 31, you're to love yourself. Um, James 2, 8, you're to love your neighbor, which includes strangers. 2 Timothy 2, 4, be kind to all. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 2, 17, uh, other believers. Titus 2.4, love spouses and children and family. Uh, Ecclesiastes 9.9, enjoy life with the woman you love. 1 Timothy 6.2, serving and respecting our believing masters. 1 Thessalonians 5.12-13, appreciating and highly esteeming those who labor among us or have charge over us or give us instruction. And Romans 12.9, caring for our enemies, blessing our persecutors, um, heaping burning coals on their head. By the way, just last night um, in in my community group, somebody um, was going through, we're talking about this and and what it means, and and actually two different people, one heard it from a professor, one heard it from um, uh, a sermon. That, that is an idiom that if you heap burning coals on somebody's head, that uh, that in that culture, some of you, you would walk around with like the coals, like a, a, a bowl of the coals um, to go heat up things. And a lot of times as you're walking, the coals would die down and get cold. And so in an act of love, you would actually give somebody hot coals. Mm-hmm. And so what are you supposed to do when you bless your persecutors? Give them the hot coals when their coals are dying out. Again, <laughs> <laughs> right, this is like blowing yeah. mind on that. But anyway, so th- those are some of the, 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 the who we're supposed to love. Now we're going to look at what we are supposed to love. So Second Thessalonians 2.10 says we should love truth for it can save. Uh, we should love the fear of the Lord. We should love his commands and instructions and his law. We see that in Psalm 119, 47 through 48. We should love good and establish justice. Uh, alongside that, we should hate evil. So we're loving good and hating evil. We see that in Amos 5.15, again in Hebrews 1.9. 
We should love wisdom. Proverbs 19.8 actually says, if you love your soul, you will seek to acquire wisdom. Mm, that's great. So that is something we should love. Uh, we should love discipline. Uh, we see that in Proverbs 12.1. And real quick, that's that's a training, not punishment. Yes, yes. Uh, we should love purity of heart and gracious speech. We see that in Proverbs 22.11. Uh, for overseers, we should love what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. We see that in Titus 1.8. Uh, and uh, scripture also says we should love food and we should love blessings. Yeah. And then along the idea of what hinders us, there are some warnings for things to not love because they can turn you away from God. They result in distress and anguish, and ultimately they can bring about death and poverty. And so one of those things is evil, sin, transgressions, disobedient, wrongdoing. Uh, really, we need to be denying the flesh. And so that's that's a pretty obvious one, I think, that we would all grant. <laughs> right. If you love sin, it's going to be difficult to actually biblically love God first and then others. Um, we also need to not love idols or foreign gods. And even with the idea of idols, don't love a theological system or a view of God. I think that both of those ideas can be in there. I think a lot of times we say idols like that's a golden thing or something else, but a lot of times we can set up our own preconceived notions as things that we begin to idolize. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting distinction to draw out there as well. Falsehood, uh, simple-mindedness, Proverbs 122 talks about this, and just derision and scoffing. Uh, Hatred, we're supposed to not love. Strife, uh, Hebrews 1.9 and Proverbs 17.17. We're not supposed to love sleep or wine or oil or even pleasure. We see that in Proverbs twenty thirteen through twenty one and how Ecclesiastes five ten. And that would be like an abuse of. Yeah, and yeah. so um, yeah, yep. And so we're also not supposed to love youthful lush. Use. Here we go. I got this, guys. Useful. Youthful lusts. Youthful lusts. Wow. And foolish speculations and quarrels. And so that's First Timothy six ten through eleven. Second Timothy two twenty two through twenty four. We shouldn't be coveting. We shouldn't be greedy. We uh, shouldn't be lovers of money. First Timothy three three and Hebrews thirteen five talks about this. We shouldn't uh, be earning money by doing wrong. Second Peter one seventeen. We shouldn't be bribers or robbers. Uh, we also shouldn't be loving and pursuing status or mm. the things of the world just in the general sense. Right. Uh, it can be really easy to have that be uh, something we strive for. And then. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 4 talks about in the last days, men and women uh, will be lovers of self. They'll be lovers of money and pleasure instead of lovers of God. And if loving God is the first step in order to biblical love, to biblically love, then if you're loving uh, self, money, and pleasure instead of that, you're not going to be able to do this. Yeah. And then a couple other little kind of side random notes that, that we learned as we did the study. Proverbs fifteen seventeen says that a dish of vegetables with love is better than a fattened oxen served with hatred. <laughs> Uh, It's important for us to remember that we're not unworthy of love. Uh, We need to move away from a mindset that we must earn love. Um, So when we're talking about love, we're talking about that affection and that Mm -hmm. delight, which is not earned, but being pleased with someone and earning that pleasedness is a different thing. Is a different thing. That's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. And then also just the idea that Proverbs seventeen seventeen talks about that a friend always loves. Um, and then we talk about some kind of unhealthy or, or bad loves. And so prostitution, which is having an I- illicit lover rather than loving God, is normally what they mean biblically in prostitution, or hyper-focusing on the physical, sensual, sexual part of love, um, is not a part of, of God's plans or desires. We see this all throughout the prophets. And again, not that sex is not a part of it all, but sex outside the parameters or hyper-focused on it right, is, is not really the intent. Uh, in Ecclesiastes 3.8, we see that there's an appointed time to love and an appointed time to hate. Uh, and based on the other scripture that we have 
read and studied, um, we would conclude that there isn't an appointed time to not love. So we should always be loving. Um, there's never kind of an allowance for us to not be loving. Right. Um, and we should be hating, you know, sin in our life. We shouldn't be condoning that sin. So we should hate the sin, but there isn't a time that we are kind of off the hook for right. loving. And then lastly, one of the things that someone in the group said uh, is that love's flashes are the very flames of the Lord and floods cannot drown it out. And just that word picture there is really powerful. Yeah, she, she was reading the Song of Songs and, and was kind of coming up with that. So the last thing I'll say here in this section too, um, is as far as like how love works, because God has destined us for salvation and we are beloved children abiding in light, we are to put on the breastplate of faith and love. For we show love to God by how we care for and do good for all, especially those of the faith, Galatians 6.10 and Hebrews 6.10, because it satisfies needs, it nourishes well-being and flourishes to an abundant life. As we said before, and from 1 Corinthians 13.8, such love never not even fails. And then I really like the 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, this is the goal of all instruction. And so understand that all of the commandments of, of, of the Bible, their goal is that we love more. So, so that's the second section of how it works. So then we can segue into the third section, which is what are the benefits of love? Like what are the reasons I, sh- I should love? This is kind of a duh you know, type thing. And so as we're going through all this, you can see all the stuff that will actually come from this if we are more loving. Um, but we have some specifics that we want to share. So if we, if first, if we receive God's love, we know from Hosea 2.19 that we shall know him and be betrothed to him forever. Zephaniah 3.17 tells us that we'll be quieted, so we'll be stilled, our anxieties will be stilled, uh, we'll be comforted, Psalm 119.76, and we'll be without fear, that's 1 John 4.18. And then also, uh, when we receive God's love, we're satisfied, we're exhilarated, and we're endowed with wealth. Uh, Proverbs 4, 6 describes that in that way. And then also 1 Peter uh, 1, 8, we have glorious, inexpressible joy and gladness. So now that we're receiving God's love, we can be more loving. And so if we're being more loving, we can accomplish all kinds of incredible things. So for example, this was this was really convicting in Titus 2, 3 to 5, and then Romans 13, 8 to 9, 8, 8 to 9. It talks about that if we love, the word of God will not be dishonored and the law will be fulfilled. Uh, it's also going to open our eyes to see and perceive beauty and value. We see that through the Song of Solomon. And then also, uh, perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4, 18. 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, love edifies and encourages. We see that in 1 Corinthians 8, 1. And then it also just leads to repentance. We see that in Romans 2, 4. And so all of this, if you're being more loving, this goes back to the maturity study, it's going to bring about growth, transformation, and maturity. Specifically, and this goes back even to heart, soul, mind, and strength, that if you're more loving, your heart is going to be full of delight and joy. You're going to feel prized and accepted. If you're more loving your soul, it's going to feel protected, safe, free. It has its identity in God. If you're being more loving, your mind is going to be thankful, at peace. It's going to be open and clear, seeing clearly the good in life and the path to perfection. And then with your strength, it's going to be bold, powerful, pure, and helpful. Colossians 3.14 tells us that love is the perfect bond of unity. It's essential to harmony, security, and acceptance. 
And then uh, Proverbs 19, 22 and 29, 3 really talks about something that we've said already. And that is when we are um, loving people, we'll have favor from God. We'll have favor, favor from kings, from fathers and men. And so we'll just make them glad and we ourselves will be desirable and admirable. And that's if we actually show the practical outpouring of love. So then in addition to all this, there's rewards that are going to come somewhat in this life, a lot in the next life, if we are loving. So we know from Jude one twenty one, love God and he will know you. You will not be cursed. You will have security and confidence in eternal life. Luke 6.35 says if we love our enemies, then we'll be considered sons of the Most High. That's a great one. Proverbs 21.21 says that uh, if we are loving, we'll have life, we'll have righteousness and glory. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, we'll have redemption. Our hearts may be established without blame and holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.8, a crown of righteousness will be awarded to all those who have loved Christ's appearing. James 1.12 talks about the crown of life that we'll receive if we're loving. And then when we look at 1 Corinthians 2.9 and James 2.5, know that the that things which the eye has not seen and, and the ear has not heard or the, the heart has not considered will all start to come with love, especially in the kingdom of heaven. So this goes back to the point that we made earlier that one of the reasons that you want to get to heaven is because you're going to get this full version of everybody loving everybody um, fully without that sin and that drama. So, so this that was a, that's a short, quick third section um, that you that you can see all the benefits that come to love. We really shouldn't we shouldn't need to be persuaded to love more. We should really see the benefits. The big question is: Are the benefits worth the effort? Um, because the effort is walking in step with God. Everything that we were already discussing in part two. I believe absolutely. Um, and so what I believe is taking every thought captive, thinking on whatever is pure, good, noble, thinking on, on setting your mind on things above, that as you begin to wrap your mind more and more around what love is and what it actually accomplishes, it'll start to click with you. This is a really good thing. I'm going to walk with God so that I can achieve it more. Yeah. So, so that's, that's a, just a, so we, you know, two and a half hours on, on section one, and we just spent like two minutes on, on section three. But we were kind of covering all of section three with that. Yeah. Yeah, because along those lines, um, I was actually just thinking, wow, that we didn't, we quote unquote, didn't really have that much for the benefits. But I feel like as we went through what love actually looks like, a lot of the benefits just came out. Right. Um, As we actually intentionally love others, um, it, like I was saying earlier, it helps us, it helps those around us. Like it impacts so many different types of people. And that should really in itself be a benefit for us. Yeah. And I think one other thing, because we saw love overlapping with a lot of these unpackings that we've already done. So looking at those lists of benefits. So if love is patient, we're being patient. So all the benefits that come with showing patience are going to be, you know, if we're showing love correctly, we're also yeah. going to get those with mercy, showing mercy and grace and all of those things. Yeah, love kind of. We're going to get all of those benefits yeah, too. Yeah, grabs and brings those things yeah. with it. And so inversely, if you're not pursuing love, both giving and receiving, um, and not developing and honing it, then you're not going to get those benefits. You're going to find yourself more lonely, more depressed, more despair, more hunger, you know, that kind of thing. And so this shows you this is why love is, is so important, which allows me to segue into a little tangent. Um, this is something that I'm, I'm really passionate about. And, and I've went back and forth over the years, and I'm still kind of refining this whole concept. But I want to talk for a second about love and glory. And, and we're going to do, actually, the very next episode is going to be on glory. Um, what is glory, and what does it mean to glorify God? 
And it be, obviously, it's a very important part to all this. One of the things over the years that has kind of bugged me, the more and more I understood love, is the, to some extent, the American church at least emphasizes glory over love. Or we, we at least give lip service to love, um, but we talk a lot about how important it is to glorify God. And so we say, you know, we say things like, as long as God gets the glory, or to God be all glory, um, or that it's, you know, that we, we must glorify God. It's the most important thing. You know, the, the, some of the stuff is that the chief end of man is to glorify God. And then you do have enjoy him forever, which is part of that love, but we kind of, it's like a tail end kind of thing. So I saw this hyper emphasis on glorify. But I was bothered by that because I, as I went through this love study, I saw a hyperemphasis on love. Um, and so it was important for me. So we ended up doing the unpacking on glory so I could better understand that. And so what I want to say real quick is, is and we'll do a whole study on this, but, or a whole episode, but glory is that resplendent heaviness. So everything has glory. Everything has some sort of resplendent heaviness. God's glory, his resplendent heaviness is just an utter degree greater than anything else's. So to glorify has two different meanings. It can mean to make something resplendently heavy. So in that definition, can we glorify God? No, we can't make him more resplendently heavy than he is. But he can glorify us. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, And then the the second definition is to recognize the resplendent heaviness of something, revel in that, and then reveal it to others. And so the idea there is, is that when I glorify God, I'm beginning to recognize his resplendent heaviness. I'm reveling in that. I'm being moved by that. I'm celebrating that. And then I'm revealing it through praise and evangelism and that kind of deal. So as I understood what that was, I noticed that that actually plays a lot into the affection piece. So it seems that the affection or treasuring piece of love would also go with the glorifying as far as the recognizing and reveling in. Um, And then the revealing would be one of the ways to contribute to God's well-being is to reveal his resplendent heaviness, his glory to others. So as I started thinking through that from a philosophical perspective, it seemed that glory or glorify actually fits under love. That that the idea that if you're actually loving in all its tent, you are going to be glorifying. But just to be glorifying isn't enough. There's more to it in the grand scope of love. So from a philosophical perspective, I saw that that glorify, as important as it is, is is a subcomponent under love. So if we make glorify our end goal, then we're actually not doing the rest of everything else that we're supposed to be doing. So it seemed to me that love, loving God, should be the end goal, knowing that glorifying becomes some of the initial steps to that. So philosophically, I felt like that love actually has a greater substance to it even than glorifying does. And I know this can really kind of freak people out as we talk about this, but I'm just trying to explain it from my understanding of it. And then secondly, the the scripture itself became a strong thing for me. So I, I tell people, listen, I, I, I would believe that glorifying God is the most important thing if Jesus said in Mark 12 that the greatest commandment is to glorify the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if he said later in John 17, the world will know that you're my disciples by this, how you glorify me. Hmm. Or if Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, these three remain, faith, hope, and the glorification of God, and the glorification of God is the greatest. And if John says all the law is summed up in this that you glorify God. If the passages actually said that, then I would believe, yes, glorification. But those passages use love, not glorifying. And again, this is not all or nothing. I'm not saying that yeah. it's not important yeah. to glorify God. I still want to emphasize that. So, so and, and sometimes like in the past, when I tried to emphasize the importance of love, I did it by de-emphasizing the importance of glory, which I got a lot of pushback 
on, rightfully so. And so I had some good friends kind of call me out on that and say, no, don't, don't de-emphasize love or glory as you're, re, as you're emphasizing love. It's both. If, if we're being honest, love does seem to have a, a super set, sit, seating over what glorify is. So, so my conclusion on that is like, okay, so, so how should we, we should take glorifying and love? What I would say is our initial goal and command as followers of God is to glorify him. But let's break through what that means. It means to begin to recognize his resplendent heaviness, sincerely and deeply revel in that, and then opportunistically reveal his resplendent heaviness to the world. But then our long-term, final, ultimate goal and command as mature followers of God is to love him, which is an even greater thing, to have that deep affection for him, to choose to remain steadfastly loyal to him, to put him first in our lives as we contribute to his well-being in a plethora of ways so that we can then love ourselves and others in, in, in similarly incredible fashion. So I just wanted to throw that out there that, that I want to try to use the language the Bible uses, and I don't want to follow the picture that the Bible wants to paint. And the Bible says, yes, you want to glorify God. It's a great thing. It's very important to do. But going back to all of these things that we were seeing, it really does seem that God's emphasis for us mature believers is that love. And so I I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. And I know that that is something, just that idea is something that's pretty uh, counter to what we hear a lot in the church, uh, depending on where you're at theologically. I think some persuasions emphasize it more than others. Um, But we really do, uh, like Shannon was just saying, it's not that we don't see glory as important. Um, and <laughs> to almost prove our point, like the next episode is about glory. Right. And so we're going to be able to really uh, discuss this more and begin to work into the nuances of what glory is. And we can probably uh, even have a bit of a longer discussion on what it actually means to see uh, how these two ideas really play together. Um, because it is important to realize where we're coming from and at least understand um, the pers- the difference in perspective that starting with glory or starting with love has because there's a lot of implications that come from that and I think it's worth um, taking the time to figure out what that actually looks like in a practical way which we are planning to do. So that leads us to the fourth and final section which is the application and so the first thing we want to do real quick is is as you're listening to all this you might have had some questions and so we've tried to think ahead of time what those questions might be so we're going to do a quick little Q&A um, and then we'll, then we'll go from there. Yeah so the first question is like what if you're just not feeling this if you don't have that affection for people which we had said was the first step of loving others like what what should I do? Yeah, so you can't force this, right? If you don't have the affection, you don't have the affection. You can't like just force yourself to have affection. So what I believe is going back to the, the fruit of the Spirit and walking in step with the Spirit, I really do believe from Galatians 5 that if you're walking in step with the Spirit and you're maturing in the faith, that God is actually going to change your heart and transform your heart, and you're actually going to find yourself having that affection for them. So the key there is if, if some of these elements just aren't coming naturally to you, this goes back to it's not on your own power, be walking and sitting with God, and he'll actually equip you with these things. And then just a quick follow-up to that. Is there a baseline thing that all people have that if even if we can't find anything else, is there something that we can really just grasp onto? Yeah, yeah. So I believe that everybody has worth, kind of the imago Dei. Uh, and so um, at the very least, you should have affection or you should value or treasure the fact that somebody exists. And so quick side note on that, that is for the unborn life. I you know, believe life begins at conception. And so that has value and you should, you should have a value, you should have affection for that. But you also have 
have to have affection for that prisoner or that criminal or that rapist or whatever because they're still human. They're still made in the image of God, and we need to have an equal affection for both because we talk about how you know innocent life, and that's not an innocent life. Innocence doesn't matter. First of all, all life <laughs> has you know some sort of sin element, but also that that love is actually looking past the wrong and still valuing the person. So we've talked about this idea of of love being of heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, So do you think that there's a specific, correct, sequential order to all of that? Um, Do we have to go in order if we are missing the heart part? Can we not do the rest of it? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I like the idea of saying that once you have the affection, then you'll be committed to, and then you'll be patiently understand, and then mm-hmm. you'll contribute to their well-being. But it may not play out in that way. Yeah. You may, the affection may not be there, but you choose to go ahead and show patience and forgiveness to that person. And then actually, as you show the patience and forgiveness to them, the affection starts to develop. Or like you start contributing to somebody's well-being, and then as you see the benefits that come from that, you actually, that was only like when convenient to you, et cetera. This then you become loyally committed. So yeah, all the parts can actually play out in different orders. That'll vary. Yeah. And then we talked about different hindrances to um, just this whole idea of loving people. What, and also in the maturity episode, we talked about how we need to be replacing things. And so how can we really be countering the hindrances that we talked about earlier? Yeah, so there's a, a bunch of like little things that can kind of rapid fire through that. Um, you can receive God's love more, First uh, John four nineteen. You can walk with the st- in step of the Spirit, which we've repeated a bunch of times um, this evening from Galatians five. Humility will help with this. That's in Ephesians four one to three. Honestly, valuing all of everything in existence coming from the, the Genesis creation account, having an open-eyed investigation, actually looking for um, somebody's value or, or ways that you can help, embracing the messiness of life. You've mentioned that before. You really need to be much more patient and accepting, not condoning, but patient and accepting of the messiness of life. It'll, it'll go a long way to help you be more loving. Um, the solution, f- solution focused in trusting. So just giving people the opportunity to become stronger and better. Um, and then a lot of these rekindling materials, they're all aimed at helping one becoming more loving, becoming more maturing. So this all goes back to season one. The the lens is the sweet and sour, the eternal, internal, external, the bead you have, the flight fight persevere, muddy fields. Those will all kind of play into that. Um, and then really the, the application that goes back to that sequential order I, I told you, that if I'm applying this definition of love to God and then self and then loved ones and then strangers and then enemies, practically, realistically, that could help um, counter some of those hindrances. So we've talked a lot about uh, that kindness, that useful contribution, uh, having compassion for others. Uh, What does that look like practically in action? Yeah, so that could turn out a million different ways. So it's just whatever the need is, you're meeting the need. So it could be holding the door open for somebody. It could be helping somebody um, unload their cart out in the parking lot of the grocery store. It could be giving somebody an encouraging word. Um, It could be giving them affirmation. It could be giving them a rebuke if done properly, you know. and so it could be a physical need, it could be a spiritual need. There's a many, many different ways that you contribute to one's well-being, so you need to pay attention to them. A lot of times we hyper-focus on the physical needs, and that's a really good thing, but there's also the emotional needs, the cognitive needs, the spiritual needs is where prayer comes in. So there's a whole bunch of ways that can play out. And then also just why do we have to be walking in obedience with God in order to really embrace this kind of love? Yeah, so one of the questions is, can a non-believer love mm, yeah. or can a non-believer do good? I believe yes. I believe that because we're all made in Mago Dei in the, in the image of God, we all have some innate level of love or some innate level of goodness. So we can look at all these specifics and we can see non-believers doing some of that. And so, so great. 
But what I would say it's not enough, that full version of everything that we've been wanting to do. If you actually wanted to do that full version of love, you cannot do that of your own power. You don't have the strength or wisdom to do that. And so this is where you must walk in, in step with God and follow him and obey him and be a believer, uh, Christian, um, so that you can best do that. And by the way, I do know non-believers that are more loving than Christians. Mm-hmm. So I want to be honest with that. And so we Christians need to step up and really set the example for the world of what this full version of love looks like. Uh, Shannon, what would you say to maybe a listener who is struggling to really believe that God loves them? Maybe they haven't fully experienced God's love towards them. Um, So a lot of what we've said they just can't relate to because they don't quite— they're not there yet. Yeah, I've I've talked with so many believers, even here, you know, in Lynchburg, that wrestle with that. Like they know in my head, I know that God loves me. Yeah. But in my heart, I'm just not there. One of the hard parts is that because He's invisible and intangible and inaudible, we can't get a full version of that yet. Even though He fully loves us, we can't fully experience it. This will go back to Paul in First Corinthians 13. Mm-hmm. So that now we see, but in part. So what I would encourage people to do is. One, you need you need to begin to really trust in the Scripture. Don't just give lip service that you believe the Bible is true. Actually become convinced. This can get into apologetics and back some of the, the episodes one and two. You need to become convinced that what the Scripture says is true. And the Scriptures say that God loves me and he loves you. And so if the Scriptures say it, even though I haven't quite had the evidence of yet or haven't experienced that fully, the Scriptures tell me that it is. And so I need to begin to believe it. And part of it is, is you're believing it into reality. It already is reality. But but you just need to convince yourself, even without the evidence, um, that it is true. So one of the things I did a couple years ago was, you know what? I'm going to run an experiment for like three months. I'm just going to pretend that all of this is true and that God really is these things to me when he loves me. I'll just pretend. Whoa. Like, like it just changed the way I look look at things. It changed a spring in my step. It really worked. And so just, just what if it was true? What would it be like? And let yourself be moved by that. And then this is where the hope comes in like a hope deferred understand that in heaven you will get that full version of that and again this is a trust issue it really is a trust issue but trusting that god really is loving that he really does love you in all these details that you'll see that little bits and pieces here you'll get the full version on the other side of the gates yeah and then also just in in really a practical sense will my love look different depending on who i'm talking to and loving Yeah, and this is nuanced. So in one sense, there's only one type of love. And this is what love is, and you're supposed to love everybody. So in that sense, it's the same. Um, But in the details and nuances, it's going to play out differently. And so, for example, your maybe the level of affection or cherishing might vary from person to person. um, Or the extent to which you contribute their well-being depends on how well you know them, how much time you spend with them. So all that will vary. This doesn't mean as an excuse that you can kind of pick and choose. Oh, so I don't have to have affection for my enemies. No, you need to do all the elements to all people. Just know that the the degrees and the timing and how all that plays out is going to vary for, for a bunch of reasons. So earlier you were talking about, um, you know, how we should be selfless and putting others' needs before ourselves, and, and what if that means that my needs are getting met? And you said, best case scenario, we're going to be in communities where other people are doing the same and putting our needs above theirs. But what if that's not happening? What if we are not in a community where people are doing the same to us and our needs aren't being met? Yeah, and that's really the reality, right? Yeah. Um, that, well, I don't want to start doing this if I'm not getting it in return. Well, that's the whole point of love is to do it even if you don't get it in return. So what I would say is, is, is you're striving to do this 
in general, as you sincerely are doing it, there'll at least be a handful of people that are going to return the same to you. So what I would say, practically speaking, is cherish those few individuals. And by the way, send this podcast link to other people that, that you think would really appreciate this and that would actually, you know, just, oh, I, I want to I want to do this. Um, and, and then you guys can begin doing it together, you know, in some sort of community. Maybe the community's two people, maybe it's three, whatever. Um, but anyways, so find those one or two or three or four people in your life um, that can do that in return and know that God's doing it, though you're not fully experiencing it. And then find these few people that are doing it and loving it yourself. And what I would say is, is if you're receiving God's love and you're loving yourself and you're getting it from a couple of people, you'll be able to get by. It'll be empowering. Um, and by the way, if you know nobody in your life that lives this way, this is another reason for me to find community with mature Christian believers. Find a small group or a church that really tries to live all this stuff out and, then, and be a safe place with that. So anyways, so if you're not getting it, um, try to find it as best as you can from God and self and a little bit from others. And then know that in heaven, you're going to get that full version of that because everybody will be. And you just kind of need to wait uh, until that with that. So, so I think, um, let me ask you guys a couple of questions. So I'm sure there's tons more questions with all this, but those are some of the ones that we at least wanted to voice uh, as you're listening to the study. So, so now wrapping all of it up, um, the application. And so we're going to challenge the listener here in a second, but I want to go with you guys first. So as, as you went through this study, as you are studying, understanding all this concept, what's an application that you've made for yourself uh, going from this point forward? For me, it really was uh, making an intentional choice to continue to display love in this way when others don't show it to me. Um, so like what you just talked about, Shannon, when I am not, when other people aren't putting my needs before theirs and, and they aren't being selfless, um, I choose to continue to be selfless um, and continue to intentionally um, stick around when they don't or uh, when they do something that's hurtful, making that allowance for those faults and making that room, not taking them into account and um, continuing to do these things when the other person in their relationship doesn't. So your application and commitment is to do that even if you're not getting it in return. Yeah. Why? Why did you make that decision for yourself? I just, I saw the value of it and, and how so much of what we have talked about um, comes down to um, that commitment and that loyal devotion. And if, if that loyal devotion wavers with, with whether or not the other person is feeling the same way, that's not really love. Right. So that was a huge piece for me um, that I saw I, if I'm going to be loving, I've, I have to do this. I have to have that loyal, faithful devotion regardless of what the other person chooses to do. Yeah. And that's giving is better than receiving. That's a sign of maturity. Yeah. Zach, what about you? I really had one main realization that led to my main application point, and the realization is that uh, this is just so foundational, and if you don't try and do this sort of love through the Spirit's power and you try and do it on your own, it's going to be miserable. Uh, first, you're not going to be able to do it, and secondly, as if you are trying to do this in your own power, you're just going to get so frustrated and um, it's just really going to be miserable. And uh, going off of that, I hear, I've heard this phrase a lot that we need to hate the sin but love the sinner. And I think in general, like, that's that's a pretty decent principle. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense. It's cliches but true. Yeah, like, we're, we're not supposed to um, condone sin, so we hate the sin, but then we love the sinner. But I think what that does is that puts us in a place where we are equating someone's actions with who they are. And so when we say that we love <laughs> sinners, what we're actually saying and oh, wow. focusing on is the fact that they sin. 
And so oh. if we're not taking wrongdoings into account, we I shouldn't label it that way. We can't really hold on to that phrase nearly as tightly as I've heard explained in different contexts. And so um, wow. just one application that I think is instead of hating the sin and loving the sinner, what we need to do is honestly almost get to a point, and this is especially with unbelievers, where we're not even recognizing sin to some extent because they're unbelievers. They're not going to be living in a way that is righteous because they haven't, they haven't, as we like to say, haven't drank the Jesus Kool-Aid. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they're not a believer. And so for us to say, uh, let me make sure I put this label on you so you know and I know, and so then I treat you accordingly. Like, that's, that's just not really what it's all about. What we actually have to do is we need to be loving people. Um, because believers and unbelievers both have muddy fields. We have areas where we sin. And if we change our mindset from we are loving sinners to we are loving people, it just puts us in such a humble mindset, and it sets us up to actually love them well instead of um, attach all sorts of, like, pity or, like, all these different emotions that can come when we're loving them out of a label mm-hmm. instead of just loving them for who they are. So let me say this. Uh, I agree with all that. You said, you know, we need to do this and we need to do this, and it sets us up. Say that again, but just say I. Hmm. Yeah, and so uh, as an individual, uh, I need to be loving others in a way that I am recognizing that they aren't a sinner, they're a person, and they're created in the image of God, and I need to personally... um, let that influence my thinking as I look at them. And then I need to be loving them in the way that first Corinthians talks about that Mark talks about. And I need to be contributing to their well-being and doing all of those things that we've been talking about for the past two hours. And if you do this, it sets you up. And if I do this, then it actually sets me up to love them in the way that we've described. And it allows me in order to see them the way God sees them. And so I can actually be much more intentional in their life. And so we hear at the podcast, we want to use both the we language and the I language, right? Because the we language is, hey, we're all in this together. We're all kind of stumbling our way forward. Um, but then the I really kind of sets it home, you know, for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for me, my application, so a couple of years ago when I first started all this study, the application was letting, letting God love me and letting me love myself. And so going through these initial definitions and, and what it means and what if it's actually true, so realizing that God is not irritated with me and that God delights in me and he's committed to me no matter what, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. really letting myself believe that. It's transformed so much of, of what I've done. Then more recently, the application has become, so now that I'm getting better at, at letting God love me and me loving myself, let me really begin loving others. And so I remember, I, I think I've told this before um, in one of the podcasts, but a couple of years ago, I had a, a buddy mind that had, had wronged me, had dishonored me, um, and it really upset me. It really offended me. And so I wanted to call him out on it. And he was more passive individual. I'm a more assertive individual. So when I tried to call him, he knew what was going on, so he didn't answer the phone, you know, which just made me more mad, etc. And so one day I was at church, and I was sitting there and, uh, before the service, was just kind of praying and thinking, and uh, and felt like, you know, God's like, let's talk about this a little bit um, with that individual. And so, um, are you loving him? And I'm like, yeah, Lord, I'm, I'm loving him. And then, of course, God being God's like, are you? Let's walk through this. And so he went. So I, I've begun to memorize all of these things that we've been 
think talking about because I know if I memorize them, I'm more likely to live them out. And so I started going through 1 Corinthians 13. And so so God's like, are you being patient with him? And and what's the definition of patience? I'm like, definition of patience is refraining from it. Enfor- oh, never mind. Yep. Hmm. So I, I'm not refraining from enforcing what is due because I felt there was a certain honor and respect due to me, and I was trying to enforce that. So I wasn't being patient. Um, and then he says, now love is kind. And we know that means useful. Are you being useful to his well-being? So you know him well. You know some of the struggles he's been going through. Have you been contributing to him in those struggles? I'm like, not recently. I don't even know what the latest is. It's been like three months since I've asked him about those things. So I'm not being kind. Um, and then uh, love is not irritated. Next question. You know, um, And so love does not keep record of wrongs. Next question. So as we went through that, I realized, holy cow. So I want to say that I'm loving him. But according to this definition, I'm not. So, so then I felt like God's like, so what does that tell you? It tells me that I need to actually apply that. Okay, and what would that look like? Well, so I, I need to actually be spending time with him, seeing what the latest is on his situation, reaching out to him in that sense, and contributing to his need, encouraging him, praying him, whatever, not holding his wrongs into account with all of this, and just be focused on what he needs. And so in that moment, not enforcing what I was due. So I was like, okay, and, and again, I, I, I want to take all this stuff seriously. If the Bible tells me to mature, I want to mature. If it tells me to do this, I want to do this. Apply the details of the Bible to the details of my life. I was like, okay, so I'll, I'll commit to that, God. So I reached out to him to see if he wanted to go get some beer and wings locally here and just kind of catch up. And what was funny was, and my whole point of doing that was just so I could do this love um, in a very sincere way. But I didn't tell that to him. I just said, you want to get wings. He hadn't responded to any of my text, phone calls, or emails in the previous couple of weeks. Responded to that one. That's weird, you know. Um, and he's like, yeah, let's do it. So we went out. We got a beer. We got some wings. And I remember I got there early, and we're sitting at the bar. And I'm like, okay, all right, Shannon, you know the rules here. You can't be focused on the wrongs that he did, and you can't try to enforce what is right. You just need, And you can't be irritated by any of that. You just need to be focused on what he needs and, and, and the things. So when we got together, I was like, hey, so catch me up on – he had like three specific situations with family and some other stuff. I said, catch me up on each of those. And so he started catching me up on it. And sure enough, things had gotten worse in some of them. And so we were kind of talking through like – what you know? What's a, what's some wisdom and, and guidance that he can have, and some encouragement, and that's just that's what the whole conversation was about. And as we were doing all that, he said, "And by the way, Shannon, let me say this: I know that when things are, are coming are, are happening to me, that, that you know, it's just trials and suffering and such, I shut down. And I know that when I shut down, one of the things that I do is I shirk my responsibilities. And I know that I had a responsibility with some of the stuff that I was supposed to be doing for you, and I didn't do that. I shirked that responsibility because of all this stuff. And so I just wanted to apologize for that." And so in my head, I'm again, boom, boom, blah, blah, blah. This is insane, you know? And so we've talked before. I have a friend of mine that walked away from the faith recently that he thinks that it's a myth now, that Jesus isn't God, that it's noble to want to live this way, but it's not true. And he told me once when we were having uh, dinner together and he was kind of explaining why he'd come to that. He said, Shannon, you're smart enough. You're going to come around to that conclusion as well one day, that the Bible can't, it's not this defined book. It was written by men. It's got errors in it, all that kind of stuff. And I said, man, I can't. And, and here's why. Because, and again, I've said this phrase before, but it, it's so resounding to me. Some Jewish guy who lived in the first century AD in the backwater part of the Roman Empire wrote a letter to another church that was in Greece, and in, that, in Corinth. And in that letter, he gave a very technical Greek description of what love looks like. And I have found that if I take that first century Jewish guy's technical definition of love and I apply it here, and this was in 2015 at the time, I apply it in 2015, it actually repairs friendships. Why in the world would I walk away from that? You know, so, so that whole experience showed me that love actually works. And holy cow, did I have to let go of the wrong that happened to me? 
right? And all these things that we don't want to do. But I'm like, let me, all right, you know, what, let me just give this a shot. And so I started applying some of these details, um, and and they work. Um, and, and they change things. And so for me, the application now is because I get irritated really easily. Um, and so I come back to, oh, crap. Um, love is not irritated. Love does not let itself get provoked or irritated by things because it's not taking the wrongs into account. It's seeking to find their well-being because you have an affection for them. So when somebody irritates me, uh, I, I've stopped, oh, I can't say they're irritating me. I'm letting myself be irritated. Oh, I don't want to admit that. You know, and so that's my application is to actually take these details. And again, there's tons and you can't do all of them in the same situation. It's just too much. But I'll take some of those details of all this list that we came through and say, all right, so here in the situation, I'm not loving this individual as well as you should. What would it look like? Um, and it's difficult. But I found there's a slow burn and a slow turn, you know, with all this that over time it starts becoming a little more default. So that's that's my application. So now it all just comes down to you, the listener, where are you at? You know, with this, um, do you understand what love is? Are you beginning to understand some of the details and complexities and nuances and difficulties and rewards that come from all this? Is it beginning to click that this is the most important thing in God's economy? Um, and this is that he is love. And so he does this perfectly. Um, are you letting yourself receive that love? Are you beginning to love yourself that same way? Are you beginning to love your close ones that way? Do you dare begin to love some of the harder to love ones that way? Wherever you guys are at, you're all over the place, right? Uh, all these listeners, um, wherever you're at, there's not one sequential order, all that kind of thing. Find the thing that resonated with you. Go back and listen to this, you know, almost three-hour podcast again. Um, and and find the components, at least to start with. These are the ones that move me. And just start nibbling and chewing on them and then kind of go from that next step. And as always... Um, we want to be a resource for you. So if you've got questions, if you want to kind of push back on some of the stuff we've said or you want elaboration or you want encouragement, you can go to the website at, at rekindlingministries.org. You can email us at, at info at rekindlingministries.com. Um, and then we can we can try to help you out, you know, with that. I just, the, the last thing I hope you realize is um, it kind of goes back to what we said at the beginning. Anger might stop a wrong in the moment, but love is what actually transforms a wrongdoer or transforms a person. And so you, all of us, are wrongdoers. Let God love you. Let him transform you so that you begin to do less wrong and realize it's not your identity. Don't, don't use that label. Um, and then begin to love others so that you can, you can transform them. I, I know that in heaven we'll get the full version of this, but I know that it's God's intent not to wait until then to experience all that. And so it goes back to you know the world and the boat ride do this to some extent. Those water walkers, those people who are really maturing in their faith, they're actually going to take this upon themselves because it's beneficial for God, others, and self. Um, and just little by little, we're going to just try to increase the love in the world in very, very practical ways. Um, and so I hope this encourages you guys. I hope you get something out of this. Um, we'll see you guys for the next episode, which is the glory and glorifying God. And then we'll just keep going through. We've got a whole bunch of other studies after that. And so we'll see you guys for the next episode. And, and I do want to love you as best as I can. Uh, and so we'll sign off and, and see you next time.